0: to do something. And we regard the president's statement uh, yesterday. And he was backed into it in a press conference. It was a, a reluctant statement. He did not come, come out strongly and say in ringing terms that he supported either freedom of expression as a basic core American freedom, nor did he, we feel, in sufficient uh, strength uh, threaten to retaliate if if any American citizen anywhere comes to any harm. This includes not only American citizens here in New York uh, City at uh, Viking, but it also includes Marianne Wiggins and her her own child. We feel that pressure should be uh, kept on the White House for stronger statement. It should be kept on Capitol Hill from which there has been almost no uh, noise whatsoever and on all levels of government to stand up on this issue. Finally, finally, finally we feel very strongly that uh, Walden Brooks and um, Barnes and Noble Dalton uh, should be punished for their behavior. You all read, you all, you've all, you heard um, various commentators and columnists talking about this. Many of you probably read Mr. Harry Hoffman's uh, explanation as to why he took the action he did in the Times the other day. Uh, I have a letter here which just arrived at the Guild offices from Lynn Riggio, who's the head of uh, Barnes & Noble Dalton. I'll read you some excerpts from it. Dear Mr. Massey, last Friday we were forced by a series of events to suspend the sale of a book for the first time in our company's history. This painful decision was necessitated by numerous threats against the safety of our employees, none cited, incidentally, whose well-being remains our primary concern. While many of our patrons have asked us to reconsider our decision, recent international incidents have abundantly demonstrated the dangers faced by innocent people. As individuals, we might choose to resist such acts of coercion, but as the principle of a national organization, I cannot put at risk the safety of 15,000 employees in more than 1,000 locations around the country. It is logistically impossible for us to secure the safety of so many people in so many different communities. We sincerely regret that under these specific circumstances, and at this point in time, we have no other responsible choice. We remain adamantly opposed to censorship of any sort, since the unrestricted flow of ideas is at the cornerstone of our free society. As booksellers, we believe it is time now for our federal government to intervene before any innocent people are injured by events out of their control. This is a matter of national concern, and it, is called, and it calls for a national response. Without such intervention, no citizen or group of citizens, except perhaps those of us here in this room, can adequately defend themselves against such formidable threats. We are saddened by this attempt to use international terrorism to trample our First Amendment rights. We look to the federal government to exert leadership, preserve our fundamental freedoms, and provide the needed protection and assurance so the books can be freely distributed and sold. I think, I think we should give Mr. Riggio and Mr. Hoffman some incentive to change their policy. Uh, As it happens, coincidentally, today is the annual meeting of the Authors Guild, and we're on our way over there when this meeting is over. This uh, group is 6,500 American authors. I am going to call for all the members of the Guild, and I would hope that all of the authors in this room would tell their publishers that they do not want their books to be sold (laughs) at Walden Books or Barnes & Noble or B Dalton until this until this is lifted and also we have a long memory some of us are going to carry it beyond that thank you very much
1: My name is Robert Stone, but uh, today we're all Salman Rushdie. Uh, I'm going to read a section from uh, the Satanic Verses that that appeared in a somewhat different form in uh, Harper's Magazine. Jibril Farishta, for 15 years the biggest star in the history of the Indian movies, had spent the better part of his unique career incarnating with absolute conviction. The countless deities of the subcontinent in the popular genre films known as theologicals. Then during a near fatal illness he used every conscious minute to call upon God without success until he lost his faith. On the day he was discharged from the hospital he told the driver to take him to the Taj Hotel where in the great dining room he devoured a loaded plateful of the forbidden flesh of the swine, rashers of bacon, pork sausages, hams, And after he ate the pigs, the retribution began, a nocturnal retribution, a punishment of dreams. In these visions, he was always present, not as himself, but as his namesake, the archangel Jibril, large as life. And every time he went to sleep, the dreams started up from the point at which they had stopped. They were serial visions, inexorable, impossible to escape. Jibril, fleeing his old life and arriving in London, brought the visions with him. And Jibril dreamed this. At the oasis of Yathrib, the followers of the new faith of submission found themselves landless and therefore poor. For many years, they financed themselves by acts of brigandage, attacking this, the rich camel trains on their way to and from Jahila. Mahound had no time for scruples, his scribe Salman told his friend, the poet Baal, about ends and means. The faithful lived by lawlessness, but in those years Mahound, or should one say the archangel Jibreel, should one say Allah, became obsessed by law. Amid the palm trees of the oasis, Jibreel appeared to the prophet and found himself spouting rules, 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 until the faithful could scarcely bear the prospect of any more revelation. Salomon said, Rules about every damn thing. If a man farts, let him turn his face to the wind. A rule about which hand to use for the purpose of cleaning ones behind. It was as if no aspect of human existence was to be left unregulated. Free. Free. The revelation, the recitation, told the faithful how much to eat, how deeply they should sleep, and which sexual positions had received divine sanction, so that they learned that sodomy and the missionary position were approved of by the archangel, whereas the forbidden postures included all those in which the female was on top. (laughs) Jibril further listed the permitted and forbidden parts of conversation and earmarked the parts of the body which could not be scratched, no matter how unbearably they might itch. He vetoed the consumption of prawns, those bizarre otherworldly creatures which no member of the faithful had ever seen, and required animals to be killed slowly by bleeding so that by experiencing their deaths to the full they might arrive at an understanding of the meaning of their lives. For it is only at the moment of death that living creatures understand that life has been real and not a sort of dream. And Jabril, the archangel, specified the manner in which a man should be buried and how his property should be divided, so that Salman the Persian got to wondering what manner of God this was that sounded so much like a businessman. This was when he had the idea that destroyed his faith, because he recalled that, of course, Bahound himself had been a businessman and a damn successful one at that, a person to whom organization and rules came naturally. So how excessively convenient it was that he should have come up with such a very businesslike archangel who handed down the management decisions of this highly corporate, if non-corporeal, God. After that, Salman began to notice how useful and well-timed the angel's revelations tended to be, so that when the faithful were disputing Mahound's views on any subject, from the possibility of space travel to the permanence of hell, the angel would turn up with an answer. And he always supported Mahound, stating beyond any shadow of a doubt that it was impossible that a man should ever walk upon the moon and being equally positive on the transient nature of damnation, even the most evil of doers would eventually be cleansed by hellfire and find their way into the perfumed gardens, Gulistan and Bostan. It would have been different, Salman complained if Mahoun took up his positions after receiving the revelation from Jibril. But no, he just laid down the law, and the angel would confirm it afterwards. So I began to get a bad smell in my nose, and I thought, this must be the odor of those fabled and legendary unclean creatures. What's their name? Prawns. The fishy smell began to obsess Salman, who was the most highly educated of Mahoun's intimates, owing to the superior educational system then on offer in Persia. On account of his scholastic advancement, Salman was made Mahound's official scribe so that it fell to him to write down the endlessly proliferating rules. Ali, those revelations of convenience, he said, and the longer I did the job, the worse it got. Anyway, Salman said, finally I decided to test Mahound. One night he had a dream in which he was hovering above the figure of Mahound at the Prophet's Cave on Mount Cone. At first, Salman took this to be no more than a nostalgic reverie of the old days in Jahila, but then it struck him that his point of view in the dream had been that of the, arch, the archangel. And at that moment, the memory of the incident of the satanic verses came back to him, as vividly as if the thing had happened the previous day. Maybe I hadn't dreamed of myself as Jibril, Salman recounted. Maybe I was shaitan. The realization of this possibility gave him his diabolical idea. After that, when he sat at the prophet's feet, writing down rules, 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 he began surreptitiously to change things. Little things at first. If Mahound recited a verse in which God was described as all hearing, all knowing, I would write all knowing, all wise. Here's the point. Mahound did not notice the alterations. So there I was, actually writing the book, or rewriting anyway, polluting the word of God with my own profane language. But good heavens, if my poor words could not be distinguished from the revelation by God's own messenger, then what did that mean? What did that say about the quality of the divine poetry? Look, I swear, I was shaken in my soul. It's one thing to be a smart bastard and have half suspicions about funny business, but it's quite another thing to find out that you're right. Listen, I changed my life for that man. I left my country, crossed the world, settled among people who thought me a slimy foreign coward for saving theirs, who never appreciated what I, but never mind that. The truth. The truth is what I expected.
2: Hello, I'm Larry McMurtry. I'm very honored to be here today to speak up for Salman Rushdie's right to the freedom of his own imagination. I'm going to speak to you quite briefly and principally as a bookseller rather than an author. I own four small secondhand bookshops. Uh, I'm speaking to you principally as a bookseller. I own four small secondhand bookshops in various cities in the country. As such, I have a foot in both worlds, the world of bookselling, the world of writing. And um, I like to think that these two feet are joined to the same body, which is the body of literature. To my sorrow, uh, less than three weeks ago, I went down Fifth Avenue and signed books in my capacity as an author in those chain stores. At that time, Salman Rushdie's books were (coughs) piled up right next to my own. Now my owners still there, and his are gone. And I think that's shameful and regrettable, terrible. Now, I don't accept the argument of the owners of the chains that their concern is only for their employees. I think it has something to do with their liabilities as well. I have only 10 employees. I've had most of them for the whole 20 years that I've been a bookseller. Um, They are completely devoted to our bookshops. They come to them with excitement every day because of the pleasure and the enrichment that it gives them uh, to work in intimacy with literature, with books, and with people that read. And they are at some risk every day. These bookstores are in urban areas in America that are not perfectly secure. The day we may not have faced the full wrath of the Muslim right, but the day seldom passes. But what we have deranged, hostile people in our stores. Sometimes both deranged and hostile. Uh, I myself was once faced with immediate execution by a six-foot-six transvestite in a yellow miniskirt who became extremely angry at me because I couldn't immediately provide him with the Mark Twain book that he wrote wanted. (laughs) These are no more, I think, than the common risk of urban bookselling, which urban booksellers and their employees deal with every day. We sell Salman Rushdie's books. We're going to get as many of them as we can and pile them in the windows of our bookshops. And I know that if I told my, I know that if I told my employees that we were going to hide Mr. Rushdie's books uh, in the basement, they would be outraged and they would quit immediately, because they do not. Uh, it's, it has something to do with how you see your life. There is some risk. At the same time, I believe they think they're having a wonderful life and they're having it because they work in those bookshops and deal with books and readers every day. If I took that away from them, I would be taking away from them something very vital to their sense of vocation. And that is the belief that they are to some degree agents of culture and allies of literature. And I'm not going to do that. We're going to sell those books. Thank you.
3: I am
4: Diana Trilling, and I am a writer. I am am afraid that I am not able to read my own statement. I am afraid that I am unable to read my own statement, but I have asked my friend Quentin Anderson to read it for me. I wrote it. I wrote it before the statement by Bush to his press conference yesterday, and I find no reason to change what I wrote.
5: I am not here today simply to celebrate the work of Salman Rushdie. I have not read any of his books and perhaps never shall. While our gathering this afternoon obviously has its point of departure. In the publication of Mr. Rushdie's recent novel, his situation has developed into something of much greater significance than the merits or demerits of his literary performance. Profoundly concerned, though we naturally are, for his safety, his situation now transcends even the matter of his personal fate, in calling for Rushdie's murder, and the murder of his publishers, and offering huge sums of money and reward for their deaths, the Ayatollah Khomeini has called for the murder of intellectual freedom everywhere in the world. My freedom, your freedom, the freedom of us all. He has issued a threat of such magnitude that we must set aside our partisanships and preferences, whether literary or political, and firmly express the solidarity of our opposition to him. Rushdie the individual yields place to Rushdie, the symbol of our right to speak and publish as we wish, certainly without fear of death. Indeed, without fear of any reprisal or punishment other than comes to us in the freely inspired criticism of our peers. We are living in a century in which brutal totalitarianism has ruled in all too many parts of the world. But totalitarianism is accustomed to doing its bad work in secret, within its own boundaries. The sentence that has been passed upon Mr. Rushdie represents, in my knowledge, the first time that the leader of one sovereign state has dared to demand the execution of a citizen or citizens of another state, and has made this demand openly and brazenly, challenging the fundamental values upon which we base our notion of the community of civilized nations. Such an act of terrorism cannot be tolerated by any of us, whatever our location on the political spectrum. If modern history has taught us nothing else, it must surely have taught us that what we passively accede to today will be forced upon us tomorrow. Not only the writers among us, but every reader among us, every teacher, every librarian, every educational institution, and every organization dedicated to the preservation of human rights has the responsibility to oppose this terrible precedent. The religious leaders of our country have the particular duty to remind us that violence is not an acceptable partner of religious faith. The people of a democracy must make their will known to their government, but it is government that acts upon our will. After all, it is only government that has the power to implement our opposition to an act of this flagrancy. We must demand of our administration in Washington that it not only impose all possible sanctions upon Iran, but that it make it unmistakably plain that if any American citizen is harmed as a consequence of his or her support of Rushdie, this will be met as an attack upon our country itself. If ours is a nation in which freedom of thought and expression is no longer a first principle, let us all bow our heads in disgrace.
6: Didion, and I'm going to read a passage from the Satanic Verses. Uh, Can you hear? (laughs) Okay. Is that loud enough? (laughs) Uh, Salman Rushdie has said a number of times that the Satanic Verses is a novel about migration and transformation. In this passage, the character Saladin Shamcha, an Indian expatriate working in English television commercials as a voiceover specialist, explains his first days in London when he was 13. On winter nights, he who had never slept beneath more than a sheet lay beneath mountains of wool and felt like a figure in an ancient myth.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
6: okay. okay. Sitting down be better. Okay. Yeah. Oh, All right,
8: just relax. Okay. You just, you just have to just kiss it. Okay, okay. you want to sit down? Want to try it? Just take your time. Don't let, you know. You want some water? Just
6: take some water. No, no right, I'm fine. Yeah. Okay, then I yeah. want that.
8: Okay.
9: okay. Uh, okay. All right.
6: On winter nights, he who had never slept beneath more than a sheet lay beneath mountains of wool and felt like a figure in an ancient myth, condemned by the gods to have a boulder pressing down upon his chest. But never mind, he would be English, even if his classmates giggled at his voice and excluded him from their secrets because those exclusions only increased his determination. And that was when he began to act, to find masks that these fellows would recognize. Pale face masks, clown masks, until he fooled them into thinking that he was okay, he was people like us. He fooled them the way a sensitive human being can persuade gorillas to accept him into their family, to fondle and caress and stuff bananas in his mouth. One day, soon after he started at the school, he came down to breakfast to find a kipper on his plate. He sat there staring at it, not knowing where to begin. Then he cut into it and got a mouthful of tiny bones. After extracting them all, another mouthful, more bones, his fellow pupils watched him suffer in silence. Not one of them said, here, let me show you. You eat it this way. It took him 90 minutes to eat the fish, and he was not permitted to rise from the table until it was done. By that time, he was shaking, and if he had been able to cry, he would have done so. Then the thought occurred to him that he had been taught an important lesson. England was a peculiar-tasting smoked fish full of spikes and bones, and nobody would ever tell him how to eat it. He discovered that he was a bloody-minded person. I'll show them all, he swore. You see if I don't. The Eaton Kipper was his first victory, the first step in his conquest of England. William the Conqueror, it is said, began by eating a mouthful of English sand. Thank you.
10: My name is. Uh, my name is Edward Said. I. <coughs> uh, In 1984, Salman Rushdie published an essay in Granta entitled Outside the Whale, in which he showed that today's writer could not be outside the whale, insulated from history and politics. The modern world, Rushdie says, lacks not only hiding places, but certainties. These words have an ominously prophetic applicability to Rushdie's situation today, not only because he has to be and has found a hiding place in order to save his life, but because he wrote a book that made a very devil of a racket in challenging certainties, provoking anger and and amazement. He says in that essay, if writers leave the business of making pictures of the world to politicians, it will be one of history's great and most abject abdications. Outside the whale, he continues, is the unceasing storm, the continual quarrel, the dialectic of history, Outside the whale, there's a genuine need for political fiction, for books that draw new and better maps of reality and make new languages with which we can understand the world. Outside the whale, we see that we are all irradiated by history. We are radioactive with history and politics. We see that it can be as false to create a politics-free fictional universe as to create one in which nobody needs to work or eat or hate or love or sleep. Outside the whale, it becomes necessary, and even exhilarating, to grapple with the special problems created by the incorporation of political material, because politics is by turns farce and tragedies, sometimes both at once. Outside the whale, the writer is obliged to accept that he or she is part of the crowd, part of the ocean, part of the storm. The Satanic Verses is an astonishing and prodigiously inventive work of fiction. Yet it is like its author in history, the world, the crowd, and the storm. It is in all sorts of ways a deliberately transgressive work. It parallels and mimics the central Islamic narratives with bold, nose-thumbing, postmodern daring. And in so doing, it demonstrates another side of its author's unbroken engagement with the politics and history of the contemporary scene. Salman Rushdie is, after all, the same distinguished writer and intellectual who has spoken out for immigrants' black and Palestinian rights against imperialism and racism as well as against censorship. And he has always unhesitatingly expressed willingness to take active political positions whenever his voice has been needed. I think that what shocks Muslims in the novel is the book's knowing intimacy with the religious and cultural material it so comically and resourcefully plays with. There is also the further shock of seeing Islam portrayed irreverently and although as a secularist and unbeliever I have difficulty in using the world blasphemously, portraying Islam blasphemously by a Muslim who writes both in and for the West. The cultural context is horrifically and even ludicrously inhospitable to such transgressions. Most Muslims think of the current situation between their community and Western civilization in singularly unhappy terms. How many Islamic writers, Muslims say, from Egypt, Iraq, Palestine, Pakistan, or Senegal are published, much less known or read in the West? And why is that ignorance there if not for the disregard, indifference, and fear with which things Islamic are considered here? Islam is reduced to terrorism and fundamentalism, and now, alas, is seen to be acting accordingly in the ghastly violence prescribed by Ayatollah Khomeini. The fury increases, as do the pieties and the vindictive righteousness. Above all, however, there rises the question that people from the Islamic world ask, why must a Muslim who could be defending and sympathetically interpreting us now represent us so roughly, so expertly, and so disrespectfully to an audience already primed to excoriate our traditions, reality, history, religion, language and origins. To try to answer these questions is by no means to deny the anguish and seriousness in the questions. But it is as a beginning to say that although it contains many spheres, the contemporary world of men and women is one world. Human history therefore has many divisions, many particularities, but it too is one. In this world, Salman Rushdie from the community of Islam has written for the West about Islam. The satanic verses thus is a self-representation. But everyone, everyone should be able to read the novel, interpret it, understand, accept, or finally reject it. And more to the point, it should be possible both to accept the brilliance of Rushdie's work and also to note its transgressive apostasy. If this peculiar paradox is also an emblem of the fate of hybrids and immigrants, that too is part of this contemporary world. For the point is that there is no pure, unsullied, unmixed essence to which some of us can return, whether that essence is pure Islam, pure Christianity, pure Judaism, Easternism, Americanism, Westernism. Rushdie's work is not just about the mixture, it is that mixture itself. To stir Islamic narratives into a stream of heterogeneous narratives about actors, tricksters, prophets, devils, whores, heroes, heroines, is therefore inevitable. Most of us are still unprepared to deal with such complicated mixtures, but as Rushdie says in his essay, in this world without quiet corners, there can be no easy escapes from history, from hullabaloo, from terrible, unquiet fuss. Finally, what those of us from the, Islamic, from the Muslim part of this world need to add is that we cannot accept the notion that democratic freedoms should be abrogated in order to protect Islam. No world culture culture or or religion is really about such violence or such curtailments of fundamental rights. If we have accepted Rushdie's help in the past, we should be now assuring his safety and his right to say what he has to say. To dispute with him, to engage with his work does not cannot be the same thing, either as banning it or threatening him with violence and physical punishment.
11: My name is Lionel Tiger. I'm the treasurer of Penn and I do anthropology. A human issue we explore, in anthropology and elsewhere, is the way generations interact, how they succeed each other in the flow of time, and whether they enjoy each other or wince as they pass each other in the piazza. Salman Rushdie is part of this movement, which made me think of my own 13th birthday party. I had had my bar mitzvah service in the morning, and while I was more frightened than theological, nevertheless, I had not felt the major shift in being this landmark anniversary promised. Now it was the evening, and we were preparing for the 7 p.m. party. My parents' apartment had a backfire escape which adjoined the synagogues, so all I had to do was vault the fence, and there I was but from six to seven o'clock, radio station CJAD played the top 20, and it was vital I know the list. I played violin, but craved drums, which would have had us evicted. So it was as the top 20 percolated, I drummed accompaniment with chopsticks on the kitchen table. At 6.26, the top tune sang out. I drummed a riff, hopped the fence, and was in place at seven o'clock sharp. Next Saturday, I went to the service myself, my first as a man, but nothing happened to me, and I didn't go again. Was it my fault, the fault of the kindly rabbi who prepped me? Was it my sense that the theologians' explanations of social value and recommendations for civilized behavior did not depend on religious faith but could be adopted by any sensible being? Was it because their story seemed too simple for the churning world I knew I had to live in? Was it because they were trying to adapt the stony certainties of shepherds to the endless ambiguity of international life? I think Mr. Rushdie's elders and teachers failed him. Now they are retaliating against him for their failure. They bored him silly. They didn't convince him. They made him feel that if he was to be a warrior on the side of general life, it should be in another tribe or no tribe or in that peculiar tribe of people, writers, whose not-so-secret password is struggle. They failed him when he was a kid. They're failing him now that he's a man. They are passing the torch of generations, not as lighters of the way, but as arsonists. Enemies of Mr. Rushdie, Enemies of the frightening thoughts of some writers, please acknowledge you are not perfect. Consider that someone else's imperfection or grace or both expressed on paper may illuminate your own life. The Koran is a book. The Bible is a book. Consider it lucky you can confront new social arrangements through the experiment of the book. Such proposals may be provocative, but they are one of the best things we turmoiled humans have learned to do and to embrace. Accept no substitutes. Accept no substitutes. Don't accept any substitutes.
12: I'm Don DeLillo. Jibril the Immigrant, has this image of London. The city's streets coiled around him, writhing like serpents. London had grown unstable once again, revealing its true, capricious, tormented nature, its anguish of a city that had lost its sense of itself and wallowed accordingly in the impotence of its selfish, angry present of masks and parodies, stifled and twisted by the insupportable, unrejected burden of its past, staring into the bleakness of its impoverished future. He wandered its streets through that night, and the next day, and the next night, and on until the light and dark ceased to matter. He no longer seemed to need food or rest, but only to move constantly through that tortured metropolis whose fabric was now utterly transformed, the houses in the rich quarters being built of solidified fear, the government buildings partly of vain glory and partly of scorn, and the residences of the poor, of confusion and material dreams. When you looked through an angel's eyes, you saw essences instead of surfaces. You saw the decay of the soul blistering and bubbling on the skins of people in the street. You saw the generosity of certain spirits resting on their shoulders in the form of birds. As he roamed the metamorphosed city, he saw bat-winged imps sitting on the corners of buildings made of deceits, and glimpsed goblins oozing wormily through the broken tilework of public urinals for men. As once the 13th century German monk richelmus would shut his eyes and instantly see clouds of minuscule demons surrounding every man and woman on earth, dancing like dust specks in the sunlight, so now Gibril, with open eyes and by the light of the moon as well as the sun, detected everywhere the presence of his adversary, his to give the old word back its original meaning, shaitan, Satan. Thank you.
13: I'm Robert Caro, and I write biographies. (laughs) Bookstore chains make their living from books. At least we ought to be able to expect that they'll stand up for them. But because I write biographies that deal with political power because I write biography I'm sorry. Because I write biographies that deal with political power, I want to talk today about the Salman Rushdie controversy in terms of that power and of government. How important did the government of this country once Think that freedom of expression and speech was. When Franklin Roosevelt was defining the goals for which the United States was fighting during World War II, he did so in terms which a few of you will recall of the four freedoms. In the future days which we seek to make secure, Roosevelt said, we look forward to a world founded on four essential freedoms. And what was the first of those freedoms? The first, Roosevelt said, is freedom of speech and expression. That was 45 years ago. What is the government of the United States doing about today's attack on freedom of expression? (laughs) President Bush's statement, when it finally came, was, in my opinion, dramatically too late. And it was shockingly too little. What is the heart of that statement and contrasted with the words of the president 40 years ago? President Bush said, should any action be taken against American interests, the government of Iran can expect to be held accountable. Well, has not action already been taken against American interests? A book has been taken off the shelves in America by the action of a foreign power. Censorship has been imposed in the United States. The freedom of speech and expression of which Roosevelt spoke has been curtailed. In the case of only one book, of course, but does that fact make it more or less significant? because the one book is a precedent, and it's more significant. And the reaction of this government has been to treat this as if it is not a precedent. The focus in the media during the past few days has been on authors. Certainly authors have been affected, and not just in the ways you've been reading about in the newspapers, as the people in this room must understand. Anybody who sits down at a typewriter, to write a novel or a biography about a foreign dictator or about, indeed, any political power in the future. What is the chilling effect that this controversy will have on him? What degree of intimidation will he have to overcome in his mind? There are enough problems for writers now. This is adding a very serious one to them. The only person who could think that writers will not be chilled by this and have to overcome this, is someone who thinks that writers do not suffer from human worries and fears. But I think that the focus of the controversy so far, so much on authors, is only part of what the focus should be. Because the issue of the Salman Rushdie controversy really strikes at the heart not only of authors' rights, but of Americans' rights to read what they want. It strikes at at the very heart of what we are supposedly guaranteed by our Constitution. That's why I'm glad that the speakers before me today didn't talk merely about bookstore chains, because it's not bookstore chains that we elect to protect our basic rights, to whom we give by our votes, not only power, but responsibility. Because what we're talking about here is the protection of rights and citizens, and that is the function of government. What is the government hoping for? That some compromise can be worked out? There are issues on which no compromise is possible, and this is one of them. What is President Bush hoping for? That the issue will go away? This issue will never go away. We were were taught that if a book truly succeeded in casting light on the human condition, it would endure. Rage about it, but readers could always read it and judge it for themselves. If the book succeeded in its aim, and whether fiction or nonfiction, the aim of all books worthy of enduring is basically at heart the same, to cast light on the human condition, the book would endure, for it was there to be read. Now suddenly, a book is not there to be read, and that issue is never going to go away.
14: out to conquer the holy land with the bizarre fanaticism of that they were repulsed but they came back with coffee and pepper and mathematics they some of them understood the flourishing of art and learning uh, that existed within the islamic world of that day a society of far greater intellectual freedom and achievement than the christian world of that day But then, as now, such border crossings are rarely peaceful cultural exchanges of the sort envisioned by the United Nations and other international organizations. They were, and often are, violent shocks to the system, that is, to the consciousness of individuals and societies, accompanied by nothing but trouble, wars, revolutions, and terror. People will fight to maintain their cultural borders, for they are also the borders of identity. We cannot adequately describe the cultural shock that Western imperialism delivered to the Middle East and the Indian subcontinent in the 19th century. In the first place, it is still not over. The shock waves are still reverberating. In the second place, we cannot do it as Westerners. We cannot ourselves make the translation. That is for those Easterners to do. Salman Rushdie is one of those translators, and by virtue of his calling, he lives in a danger zone, the zone of trouble at the borders of culture and identity. In another age, this trouble might be purely personal. But in recent years, it is not so, and that is because mass parties in reaction to the cultural chaos that overwhelms them have tried to redefine their identities by saying no, by redefining themselves in harsh fundamentalist terms, the only terms which, as they see it, can offer a hope of resisting the allure and the threat of the outside world. That is why these days some Muslims are interpreting the great tradition of Islam in the way they do. Of course, it is far from the only way in which it is being interpreted. And to see the Ayatollah as a representative of Islam is like seeing the Grand Inquisitor as the representative of Christianity. (laughs) We must remember, too, that the trouble at the borders, our cultural borders, exists not just between East and West. These days, there is trouble in Northern Ireland, in Yugoslavia, in the Soviet Union, and of course, in this country as well, ...where Protestant fundamentalism has served as a rallying point for those who felt left out, left behind. Which means, of course, that the Rushdie affair may not be an isolated incident. It is not an isolated incident in the sense of an attempt at censorship. There have been book burnings and book bannings in communities across this country in very recent history. This is to remind us simply that cultural border crossings can be extremely dangerous because this is what we as cultural liberals tend to forget. On the other hand, the fact that we all have to live together, nationally and internationally, is what makes the defense of a certain kind of universalism so important. I speak of civil liberties and human rights. Thank you.
15: My name is Leon Wieseltier. In the Midrash, Rabbi Simon told this story. When the hour approached for God to create man, the angels in heaven arranged themselves into factions. Some of them said, create him. Some of them said, do not create him. Kindness said, create him, for he will act kindly. Truth said, do not create him, for he is nothing but lies. Justice said, create him, for he will act justly. Peace said, do not create him, for he is nothing but strife. What did God do? He seized truth and hurled it to earth. There, Rabbi Simon's story ended. For opposing man, truth was punished with his company. Man cannot withstand truth, truth had argued. And so man set out to show that truth could not withstand man. Man would lie and show his power. Man would have power and therefore lie. We are here today to denounce the power that preys upon truth. But I believe that when truth fell to earth, there were men who gathered it up, who sheltered it, who took it into their keeping. Salman Rushdie, who was once a friend of mine, is such a man. All his novels are written in the confidence that he can bear much reality. That his community will survive the mirror of art as brilliantly or as badly as any other community. That it suffices as a reason to live, to hold up the glass and have a look. One day the Muslim world may recall with admiration its late 20th century Anglo-Indian Voltaire. We We declare here today that Salman Rushdie is also one of our own that we know him, that all our force, such as it is, is now at the service of his work and his life. But we in the West must not gloat. We must remember that Europe, too, was once a stifled, theocratic, feudal, crusading society that burned books and burned people. It was blasphemy that made us free. Two cheers today for blasphemy. In the West, we read Moore, and Milton, and Galileo, and Spinoza, and Locke, and Voltaire, and Jefferson, and Mill, and Mann, and Tucholsky, and Kessler, and Sakharov, all a little smugly, because they won. Glibly, we attach a kind of historical inevitability to the triumph of their spirit. We recognize the persecution of Salman Rushdie, the man of the word against the man of the word, the power of the word against the power of the powers. We know all about the debt that democracy owes to heresy. But we forget sometimes that it did not have to be so. We forget sometimes that freedom was also the fruit of tragedy. Who is this man of God who has no mercy in his heart? But then let us be his match. And in the defense of Rushdie, in the defense of the imagination, in the defense of the mind, show no mercy ourselves. Let us be dogmatic about tolerance. For we, the lucky ones, have been taught at this late date in the history of infamy when even we needed the lesson that democracy has its martyrs too. I pray that Salman Rushdie does not become one of them.
16: My name is Claire Bloom. Thank you. Yes. And I'm here both to read from the Satanic Verses to show my solidarity with Salman Rushdie, but also to read a statement from Philip Roth, who is not able to be here because of his university obligations. Salman Rushdie and I come at politics from radically different perspectives. In many serious political matters, we would probably want to oppose and challenge each other's point of view. But as for the human right to challenge a point of view, to stand in opposition to a point of view, we wholly agree. As an American writer who has had the great good fortune to be able to exercise his opposition to prevailing mores and beliefs with complete freedom, and without any threat or violent retribution or state-directed punishment. I am stunned and appalled by his predicament. In Prague, a very stubborn Czech dissident, ludwik Vaculik, once said to me quite casually, we are not here to make life easy for our rulers. For holding such a belief, Vatulik knew, of course, that his rulers weren't going to make life easy for him, And they have not. The rulers of Iran have now decided not to make life easy for Salman Rushdie. For the time being, they have succeeded and with a vengeance. I can only hope that our expression of solidarity with him will at least alleviate a little the horrific ordeal that has befallen a man of extraordinary talent and courage. Philip Roth, from the Satanic Verses. Jibril Farishta dreams of an exiled imam who is and is not the Ayatollah Khomeini. And now the dream rushes him up the outer wall of the house, and on the fourth floor it pushes aside the heavy curtains at the living room window. And finally there he sits, unsleeping as usual, eyes wide in the dim yellow light, staring into the future, the bearded and turbaned imam. Who is he? An exile which must not be confused with, allowed to run into, all the other words that people throw around. Emigre, expatriate, refugee, immigrant, silence, cunning. Exile is a dream of glorious return. Exile is a vision of revolution. Elba, not St. Helena. It is an endless paradox, looking forward by always looking back. The exile is a ball hurled high into the air. He hangs there, frozen in time, translated into a photograph, denied motion, suspended impossibly above his native earth. He awaits the inevitable moment at which the photograph must begin to move and the earth reclaim its own. These are the things the imam thinks. His home is a rented flat. It is a waiting room, a photograph, air, The thick wallpaper olive stripes on a cream ground has faded a little, enough to emphasize the brighter rectangles and ovals that indicate where pictures used to hang. The imam is the enemy of images. When he moved in, the pictures slid noiselessly from the walls and slunk from the room, removing themselves from the rage of his unspoken disapproval. Some representations, however, are permitted to remain. On the mantelpiece he keeps a small group of postcards bearing conventional images of his homeland, which he calls simply Desh. A mountain looming over a city, a picturesque village scene beneath a mighty tree, a mosque. But in his bedroom on the wall facing the hard cot where he lies, there hangs a more potent icon... The portrait of a woman of exceptional force, famous for her profile of a Grecian statue and the black hair that is as long as she is high. A powerful woman, his enemy, his other. He keeps her close. Just as far away in the palaces of her omnipotence, she will be clutching his portrait beneath her royal cloak or hiding it in a locket at her throat. She is the empress, and her name is, what else, Aisha, On this island, the exiled imam, and at home in Desh, she, they plot each other's deaths. The curtains, thick golden velvet, are kept shut all day because otherwise the evil thing might creep into the apartment. Foreignness abroad, the alien nation, the harsh fact that he is here and not there, upon which all his thoughts are fixed. On those rare occasions when the Imam goes out to take the Kensington air at the center of a square formed by eight young men in sunglasses and bulging suits he folds his hands before him and fixes his gaze upon them so that no element or particle of this hated city this sink of iniquities which humiliates him by giving him sanctuary so that he must be beholden to it in spite of the lustfulness greed and vanity of its ways can lodge itself like a dust speck in his eyes. When he leaves this loathed exile to return in triumph to that other city beneath the postcard mountain, it will be a point of pride to be able to say that he remained in complete ignorance of the Sodom in which he had been obliged to wait, and therefore unsullied, unaltered, pure. And another reason for the drawn curtains is that, of course, there are eyes and ears around him, not all of them friendly, the orange buildings are not neutral. Somewhere across the street there will be zoom lenses, video equipment, jumbo mics, and always the risk of snipers. Above and below and beside the imam are the safe apartments occupied by his guards who stroll the Kensington streets disguised as women in shrouds and silvery beaks. And it is well to be too careful. Paranoia for the exile is the prerequisite of survival.
17: I'm Tony Lucas. This extraordinary event derives some of its special intensity, and I suspect much of its media coverage, from its high quotient of exotica. After all, we are dealing here with the arresting figure of the Ayatollah, our old nemesis from the hostage saga, the specter of death squads dispatched from Tehran, a leading figure of the international literary scene, born in Bombay, based in London, married to an American novelist. It is the stuff of an international thriller and almost certainly will be one or two or five before we are through. But we would do well to remember that we are dealing here with principles that transcend the blood-racing elements of this particular story. The Rushdie case is only an extreme example of the kinds of pressures and coercion, the timidity and cupidity that threaten freedom of expression with numbing regularity in many countries around the world and, sadly, in our own. I know of an American writer who was at work on a major piece of investigation. One day, he got a phone call from a man who said that a powerful and politically connected friend didn't wish to see that book in print. If the book appeared, the man said, there would be serious consequences. A few days later, the man called again with a somewhat more explicit threat, which sounded very much like death. And a few few days later, he followed up with a phone call to the author's publisher, warning that the consequences could be grave for them as well. The FBI was called in. They took the threat seriously indeed. They watched the author's home. They recorded his phone messages They watched the men believed to be making the threats. I am pleased to report that nothing happened. The book appeared, the author lives. But I can assure you that this episode cost the author and his family months of agony. Every evening when they lit the lights and drew the drapes, they wondered what kind of targets their silhouettes made across the street. But even that story is a trifle too exotic to capture the true threat which lurks behind the Rushdie affair. The real danger here is not so much assassination as greed, the mindset which puts profits ahead of our fundamental liberties. Perhaps greed is too bold a word for the reckoning of our sophisticated culture. In some circles today, it would be called the cost-benefit analysis, that shrewd calculus which weighs potential gain against anticipated loss. I don't mean to caricature the considerations which went into into some booksellers' decision to remove this book from their shelves, but I suspect it had much to do with that kind of calculation. How many books can we sell versus how many customers will we frighten away by continuing to sell the book? Some MBA from the Harvard Business School crunched the numbers and said, take the books off the shelf. That is the real threat which lurks in this episode that this kind of narrow calculation will come more and more to govern decisions in this field of literary and artistic expression. Nobody in this hall needs to be reminded of the multiple interests out there in the land who may take heart from this evidence that some booksellers and publishers are subject to intimidation. The fundamentalists who who have already succeeded in removing certain explicit sexual matter from 7-Eleven stores and may seek to compel its removal from other outlets. Some anti-pornography groups who oppressed for the same kind of restraints. The anti-abortion movement, which may wish to restrict opposing advocacy and to be sure this hall today may have special dimensions, but it has given us the ear of the American public for matters that only rarely find their way onto page one. As we fight for Salman Rushdie's inalienable right to tell us the truth as he sees it, let us use this occasion to champion the principles which his plight has thrown into high relief. Thank you.
18: I am Gay Talese. My first awareness of the inherent conflicts between men of God and men of letters began more than 40 years ago when, as an altar boy in my home parish, I would listen during Sunday Mass to a Catholic pastor railing against the sin, the decadence, and the blasphemy that he saw rampant in the literature of the day. Each Sunday, he would stand on his pulpit and warn us to avoid reading the books on the parish index, a list ranging from authors William Faulkner to Kathleen Windsor, from James Joyce to Frank Yerby. And there were also films that he told us to avoid, films too numerous to mention. My pastor spoke then with the vengeance of medieval popes harking back to a period centuries before when much of Europe was guided by the papal definition of the wicked word. And when the offending authors of such words were often imprisoned and then tortured and put to death, not much was said about them. As I grew older, I left my church in my small parish on the southern shore of New Jersey, and I studied journalism at a college far from home in the Deep South. That is where I learned about the First Amendment and the separation of church and state in our land. The right to express, free of ecclesiastical sanctions and fear, the truth as I see and feel it. And yet, though I am a stray Catholic today, have not attended Mass in 40 years, and have, had, have next to nothing in common with Cardinal O'Connor of New York, I do confess, I do confess that there are moments in my adult life when I have privately prayed. Rare, yes, but moments when I've had no one to turn to, when the despair was such that I had no other recourse but to pray. The prayer I said is a simple and most enduring prayer, not carrying the ring of militancy I knew from my altered boy days, but a prayer that reflected the precariousness of the human existence. And today, I would like to say this prayer aloud for the safety of Salman Rushdie and his family. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us those trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.
19: My name is uh, Christopher Hitchens, Um, and uh, unlike the previous speaker, I have no invisible means of support. Today, uh, today, this very day, is the birthday of George Washington. And one-third of the book outlets, as they call themselves, perhaps more aptly than they know, <laughs> one-third of these outlets are celebrating the birthday by their refusal to stock or to sell a book because its author has been condemned to death and for a bounty by an old, mad, mad, blind, despised, and dying king. To borrow borrow for a moment from uh, Shelley's very pithy encapsulation of King George III. (laughs) Now, as writers and as soi-disant intellectuals, it's most often our job to stress complexity, to point out with care and with attention that things are not as simple as all that. But there are also times when it's irresponsible not to stress the essential clarity and simplicity of a question. And the almost boastful threat to murder not just a book but its author is one such time. Moments of this kind have a galvanizing effect on our standby phrases and our trusty clichés. Heinrich Heiner once said that where books are burned, men will be burned. And now we can see for ourselves the dead straight line that connects the two offences encapsulated in that statement. I want to read just one sentence from page 93 of the English edition of the Satanic Verses. To turn insults into strengths, Whigs, Tories, blacks, all chose to wear with pride the names they were given in scorn. Likewise, our mountain-climbing, profit-motivated solitary is to be mahound." With Unusual Economy, this short passage performs two services. It shows that Salman Rushdie is perfectly sensitive to the nuances of feeling that he's accused of ignoring and accused, I might add, by those whose definition of sensitivity seems rather closely attuned to the needs of power and of bigotry, two notoriously insensitive phenomena. Instead of pluralism and tolerance today, we're faced with a pluralism of the intolerant, an ecumenicism of the Philistines that finds likeable reasons to defer to the Müllers and their sensitivities, and which comes in the oily phrases of a prince of the church in this city, and in hesitant, poltroonish noises from the man styling himself leader of the free world. (laughs) Let's... Let's briefly, and I mean briefly, consider some other charged and insulting words. The words are heretic, blasphemer, and martyr. The first two originated as insults, in fact, as very literal condemnations. But we have appropriated them, as Salman has drawn the sting of those words I read to you. We've appropriated them by force, paradoxically, the force of repression, as it was directed against freedom of conscience. To us, heretic recalls, Jan Hus, in whose native city of Prague another atrocity occurred yesterday, a Thomas More and Martin Luther. It is the ideal counterpoint to the sinister meanings of the word orthodox. Blasphemer too has been ennobled by Socrates, Galileo, Kazantzakis, Joyce and countless others who could not be and would not be content with human authority even when it came sanctified by the claim of divine right. Martyr, a more ambiguous word, is one that we still respect in its original sense. Though we have learned to distrust excessive and promiscuous zeal for it, and though we insist that any real movement for freedom will be suffering martyrs and not creating them, these are the differences historically determined between ourselves and the fanatics. And these differences in meaning are not ontological. They arise from the Enlightenment, which is an inheritance we do not have the right to betray. Having brought ruin to his country and to the Iranian Revolution, in peace and in war, Ayatollah Khomeini seeks to resist the spread of doubt and the possibility of a reformation. He's a desperate man who has almost exhausted the toxic appeal of martyrdom and of holy war. How depressing, then, it is that just at the moment when there might be a synthesis between the Muslim world and Enlightenment ideas, which are by no means Western cultural property, we should see such abject nervousness about upholding these principles in our own country, even in their most elementary form. Finally, what if it is said, as it has been said, jeeringly, that we risk nothing? Well, we risk a great deal by ceding one inch of ground to the book burners and the murderers, but to abandon the defensive... Why should we let Mr. Rushdie face this unprecedented trial alone? As readers and as critics, and in multifarious other ways, we are all directly complicit in the production of the Satanic Verses, and we are all in the debt of its author. I suggest a public declaration that until the threat of murder by contract has been lifted from our fellow author and from his decent and brave publisher, All of us who believe in the life of the written word announce ourselves publicly to be co-conspirators. They can't kill us all, and we may impress on many decent believers who are worried about the blasphemous association of their faith with crime and repression that, any rumors to the contrary, we too have unalterable convictions. We've all often had to wonder what we would have done in the unjust lands or in the unjust times, and now we have a chance in really quite a small way to find out, it is time as a minimum gesture of our solidarity for all of us to don the yellow star and to end the hateful isolation of our friend and our colleague. Thank you.
8: Gordon and I'm going to read a passage from the Satanic verses. It all boiled down to love, reflected Solomon Chamsha in his den. Love, the refractory bird of Merlach and Alevi's libretto for Carmen. one of the prized specimens this in the allegorical aviary he'd assembled in lighter days. And which included among its winged metaphors the sweet of youth, the yellow, more lucky than me, Kayam Fitzgerald's adjectiveless bird of time, which has but a little way to fly and low is on the wing, and the obscene. This last from a letter written by Henry James Sr. to his sons. Every man who has reached even his intellectual teens, begins to suspect that life is no farce, that it is not genteel comedy even, that it flowers and fructifies, on the contrary, out of the profoundest tragic depths of the essential dearth in which its subjects' roots are plunged. The natural inheritance of everyone who is capable of spiritual life is an unsubdued forest, where the wolf howls and the obscene bird of night chatters. Take that, kids. And in a separate but proximate glass display case of the younger, happier Chamsha's fancy, there fluttered a captive from a piece of hit parade bubblegum music, the bright elusive butterfly which shared l'amour with the oiseau rebelle. Love, a zone in which nobody desirous of compiling a human as opposed to a robotic, scannery android body of experience could afford to shut down operations. Did you down? No question about it. And very probably did you in as well. It even warned you in advance. Love is an infant of bohemia, sings Carmen, herself the very idea of the beloved, its perfect pattern, eternal and divine. And if you love me, look out for you." You couldn't ask for fairer. For his own part, Saladin in his time had loved widely and was now, he had come to believe, suffering love's revenges upon the foolish lover. Of the things of the mind, he had most loved the protein, inexhaustible culture of the English-speaking peoples. He had said, when courting Pamela, that Othello, just that one play, was worth the total output of any other dramatist in any other language. Though he was conscious of hyperbole, he didn't think the exaggeration very great. Pamela, of course, made incessant efforts to betray her class and race, and so predictively professed herself horrified, bracketing Othello with Shylock and beating the racist Shakespeare over the head with the brace of them. He had been striving, like the Bengali writer Niraj Haduri before him, though without any of that impish colonial intelligence's urge to be seen as an enfant terrible, to be worthy of the challenge represented by the phrase, Chivis Britannica sum. Empire was no more, but still he knew all that was good in living within him to have been made, shaped, and quickened by his encounter with this islet of sensibility, surrounded by the cool sense of the sea. Of material things, he had given his love to this city, London preferring it to the city of his birth or to any other, had been creeping up on it stealthily with mounting excitement, freezing into a statue when it looked in his direction, dreaming of being the one to possess it and so, in a sense, become it, as when in the game of grandmother's footsteps, the child who touches the one who's it, on it, young Londoners would say today, takes over that cherished identity, as also so in the myth of the golden bough, London, its conglomerate nature mirroring his own, its reticence also his, its gargoyles, the ghostly footfalls of its streets in Roman feet, the hunks of its departing migrant geese, its hospitality, yes, in spite of immigration laws and his own recent experience, he still insisted on the truth of that. An imperfect welcome, true, one capable of bigotry, but a real thing nonetheless, as was attested by the existence in a South London borough of a pub in which no language but Ukrainian could be heard, and by the annual reunion in Wembley, a stone's throw from the giant stadium surrounded by imperial echoes, Empire Way, the Empire Pool, of more than a hundred delegates, all tracing their ancestry back to a single Goin village. We Londoners can be proud of our hospitality, he told Pamela, and she, giggling helplessly, took him to see the Buster Keaton movie of that name in which the comedian, arriving at the end of an absurd railway line, gets a murderous reception. In those days, they had enjoyed such oppositions, and after hot disputes had ended up in bed. He returned his wandering thoughts to the subject of the metropolis, its he repeated stubbornly to himself, long history is a refuge, a role it maintained in spite of the recalcitrant ingratitude of the refugee's children, and without any of the self-congratulatory, huddled masses rhetoric of the nation of immigrants across the ocean, itself far from perfectly open-armed. Would the United States, with with its are you now, have you ever been, have permitted Ho Chi Minh to cook in hotel kitchens? Would its McCarran-Walter Act, have to say about a latter-day Karl Marx, standing bushy-bearded at its gates, waiting to cross its yellow lines. Oh, proper London! Dull would he truly be of soul, who did not prefer its faded splendors, its new hesitancies, to the hot certainties of that transatlantic new Rome with its notzified architectural gigantism. Which employed the oppressions of size to make its human occupants feel like worms. London, in spite of an increase in excrescences such as the Nat West Tower, a corporate logo extruded into the third dimension, preserved the human scale. Viva you. <laughs>
20: Uh, Hello, I'm Norman Mailer. I saw my old uh, friend and colleague and compatriot out there, Abby Hoffman, before we began today. And Abby said, you know, in the old days, whenever there used to be a bomb threat on the phone, we didn't get too worried about it because if they're going to bomb you, they don't tell you about it. And it occurred to me that if any of you in the future do get a bomb threat by phone, which after all only costs a quarter, that you um, reply in the immortal words of Jean Genet, blow out your farts. (laughs) By my limited comprehension of the Muslim religion martyrdom is implicit in the faith. Can you all hear all right in the back? While all faiths sooner or later suggest that that a true believer may have to be ready to die for the governing God, it is possible that the Muslims of all religions have always been the most dedicated to this stern test. Now it seems as if the spiritual corruption of the 20th century has entered Islam's ranks as well, For any Muslim who succeeds in assassinating Salman Rushdie will be rewarded with the munificent sum of $5 million. This must be the largest hit contract in history. Islam, with all its mighty virtues and vices, equal at the least to the virtues and vices of every other major religion, has now introduced a novel element into the history of theology. It has added the logic of the syndicate. One does not even have to belong to the family one does not even have to belong to the family to collect one has only to be the hitman of course the novelist in me insists on thinking how i would hate to be that hitman trying to collect that 5 million dollars <laughs> now that the deed was done i might be looked upon as an infidel oh you see my iranian paymaster might say We really cannot afford the five million. We lost so many men in the war with Iraq. There are so many widows in need of arms. And we have our orphans and our veterans, who are now missing a limb. Tell you, kind killer, we think you might wish to make your charitable contribution. (laughs) This is but a novelist's speculation. That is what we are here for, to speculate on human possibilities to engage in those fantasies, cynicisms, satires, criticisms, and explorations of human vanity, desire, and courage that the blank walls of mighty corporations like to conceal from us. We are scribblers who try to explore what is left to look at in the interstices. Sometimes we make mistakes and injure innocent victims by our words. Sometimes we get lucky and make people with undue worldly power a bit uncomfortable for a short time. Usually we spend our days injuring each other. We are, after all, a fragile resource, and endangered species. It is not untypical of the weak and endangered to chew each other up. But now the Ayatollah Khomeini has offered us an opportunity to regain our frail religion, which happens to be faith in the power of words and our willingness to suffer for them. He awakens us to the great rage we feel when our liberty to say what we wish, wise or foolish, kind or cruel, well-advised or ill-advised, is endangered. We discover that, yes, maybe we are willing to suffer for our idea. Maybe we are even willing, ultimately, to die for the idea that serious literature in a world of dwindling certainties and choked-up ecologies is the absolute we must defend. We've had the example, we have had the example of our largest corporate chain of booksellers in America, Walden Books, withdrawing the satanic verses from their bookshelves in order to assure the safety of their employees. Immediately, they were followed by B.F. Dalton. Both had honest motives, doubtless. What is the use of being upwardly mobile in one's job in a massive corporate chain if security cannot be guaranteed? Get killed selling a book? The end of the world has come. Worse, one could get killed buying a book on how to improve yourself. (laughs) Who would ever forgive the corporate chain? Of course, the option of assessing such danger calmly and informing employees and customers of the real odds was never engaged. Walden Books is something like a thousand outlets. In one working week from Monday to Saturday, if one terrorist succeeded in making one successful attack on one store, the odds that it would not be the store you worked in would be 6,000 to 1 in your favor. If, as a customer, you spent half an hour in any one of these thousand stores while it was in the course of being open for eight hours a day for six days, the odds in your favor would increase to 16 times 6,000 or close to 100,000 to 1 on your side. I think such odds, if loudly promulgated, would have brought in as many prospective customers looking for the spice of a very small risk (laughs) as would have been frightened away. For the the employees, a 10% increase for temporary combat pay could have been instituted. What are contingency funds for Now, the answer to why Walden books shut down the satanic verses is that they sell their product like soup cans. Only the homeless will ever endanger themselves over a can of soup. The largest purveyors of our books do not care about literature, whether serious, half-serious, or failed. The purveyors see books as a commodity that rots into the very spirit of the circulation of money if the books stay too long on the shelf. So they hire clerks who tend to reflect their own mores. If Saul Bellow were to purchase one of his own novels in a chain where he did not normally shop and paid for it with his own credit card, the odds that the clerk would recognize his name are about the same as the odds in Russian roulette. One in six. Saul Bellow could walk in and out of a chain bookstore like a ghost. So could I. So could any other established serious writer who's been around 30 or 40 years. Tom Wolfe might be recognized... But then Tom, for this year anyway, is the fastest-selling can of soup around. <laughs> I, maybe next year any one of us will be. It's, it's not, that was not pejorative of Tom Wolfe. It was a description of the, uh, uh, the, what can I say, the phenomenological reality. <laughs> no surprise, therefore, if retail chains of American booksellers seem to have more respect for terrorists than for culture. How then can they not help to accelerate the latest megafarce down the media road? A serious book, which may or may not have been irresponsible in part, as most serious books are, I cannot pretend to define the issue more closely, since I, I fear, in company with the people issuing the death threats, have not yet read it, although I certainly intend to, which is more than you can say for the people issuing the death threats. Yes, this serious, yet possibly irresponsible contribution to serious literature, if it had been treated like other serious novels, which are almost always in part sacrilegious, blasphemous, and secretly against the state, would, if it had encountered no formal outrage, have suffered the fate of other serious books. It would have received good, even heartening, hearteningly good, but still modest sales. It would have been discussed and taken a small place on the shelf of serious works to be picked up again by a few devoted readers. Islam might have been injured by one part in 100,000. Now Islam is injured vastly more. Oceans of publicity have been given to the sacrilege. I say the act of attracting such attention to a book so despised was a willful chosen act by the Muslim leaders. The wise men of Iran know that the Western moral conscience is dulled, and no one in our monotonous, yuppie overlay of skillful surface floating above such incalculable horrors as drug wars and acute poverty, is ready to die for any idea other conceivably than receiving a big payoff in cash. So the Ayatollah may have wished to show the great length of the whip he can crack, the whip whose secret name is found in our bottomless fear of the bottomless pit of terrorism. If we believe in nothing, how can we bear to die? The wise men of Islam know that about us. One would have to respect the incisiveness of such understanding if not for the fact that the wise men of Iran are also wholly indifferent to the fate of our literature and are savagely opposed to those freedoms of expression we wish to believe we hold dear. In this week of turmoil, we can now envision a fearful time in the future when fundamentalist groups in America stealing their page from this international episode will know how to apply the same methods to American writers and bookstores If they ever succeed, it will be due to the fact that we never found an honest resistance to the terrorization of Salman Rushdie. I would suggest, therefore, that it is our duty to form ranks behind him and our duty to state to the world that if he is ever assassinated, it will then become our obligation to stand in his place. If he is ever killed for a folly, we must be killed for the same folly, and we may indeed be since we will then vow to do our best to open all literary meetings with a reading of the critical pages in the satanic verses. A folly repeated is no longer a folly, but a statement of intent. If what Salman Rushdie wrote was grave folly, Then by killing him, you, the Ayatollah, will be obliging us to immortalize that same grave folly. For if one writer can be terminated on a hit contract and all concerned get away with it, then we may be better off being hit each of us one by one in future contracts until our chiefs in the Western world may be finally aroused by the shocking spectacle of our willingness, even though we are selfish, creative artists, to be nonetheless martyred in a cause. I will not, however, put my name on a list alone. Like others, I have my family, my projects, my life to see through to its conclusion. Join with me, rather, ten good American authors, male and female, or twenty, or a hundred in such a vow, and we are relatively safe. I add this as corollary to Hitchin's suggestion, which involves all of you. This would be for those of us who are in the public light and well-known. At least we are safer to a considerable degree and can feel honorable to ourselves. We will have struck a real blow for freedom, for the wise men of Iran will know then that we possess our spiritual wisdom, too. Certain acts count for more than others in the defense of freedom, and the willingness... The willingness to embrace an idea at perilous cost to our inner calm may be at the center of what the Western world is all about. If we were to ask bookstore clerks to stand and serve, then we must demand more than that of ourselves. Thank you.
21: Dr. O. Usually, in this century, writers are killed by secular authorities. Hitler and Stalin habitually murdered writers who offended them. The Gang of Four went after the writers and poets of China, And, of course, Latin America's generals, to this moment, take turns outdoing each other in the peculiar sport. Iran, itself, under the rule of the detested Shah Pahlavi, who was installed in a coup staged and funded by the CIA, committed writers and other Islamic intellectuals to prison without trial, and then routinely tortured and murdered them. In fact, such excesses of secular dictatorship led to the Iranian revolution under the leadership of the Ayatollah Khomeini. So, in this century at least, we in the West tend not to think of the killing of writers as a particularly religious thing to do. Islam is a great worldwide faith An outsider can imagine a writer's blasphemy against it as a profound sacrilege, and at the same time wonder why the blasphemer cannot be recovered for the faith under the instruction of the clergy. We have to wonder why the blasphemy must be the occasion for the writer's contract murder rather than his enlightenment by means of serene spiritual counsel that would lead him through his penitence and remorse to true piety and possibly redemption. Even if such a course were not possible, one thinks surely the mechanism of excommunication, the most extreme punishment in the language of religion, would be the preferred theological version of the death sentence without trial, which has been established in this century as the technique of the profane tyrannies. The great religions endure by their magnanimity of embrace. This is part of their truth, their embrace of the wretched fallibility of each of us so that we may hope to live in some state of worshipful reconciliation with our Maker. To go with God, to apprehend what is sacred, to live in clear spiritual resolution is the desire of every human being of whatever faith. It is even the desire of intellectuals, for whom intellectual life is a form of faith. The writer's skeptical mind and inquiring spirit is the soul given to discourse, wide-eyed and sometimes rude in its perceptions, examining all ideas and feelings, no matter how contradictory and ambiguous. It is nevertheless as desperately an intended pilgrimage pilgrimage toward revelation as the true believers. Those who are religiously convinced must not make the mistake of thinking that the complex intellectual life of a writer is less worthy of God than their own, or that striving through whatever terrible terrains of the spirit to an earned humility is to be necessarily less obedient to him. The writer lives in a universe of language. His mind is a democracy of contentious voices, each claiming to be truth, and he hears them all and gives voice to them all. He is a field for universal music. The writer, according to Ralph Waldo Emerson, believes that all that can be thought can be written. In his eyes, a man is the faculty of reporting, and the universe is the possibility of being reported. This truly is our faith. Who can say that God didn't intend for some of us to serve him in this way? Who can say the writer does not prostrate himself before God each and every day he rises to his work? Or else, we all commit sacrilege, the basic sacrilege of intending to write, when the sacred text of the word of God is already written. The poet of rhapsody and celebrant of God's glory, the pious scholar, the exegete who combs the sacred text, is no less hellbound than the satirist, the ironist, and the skeptic. All our books should be destroyed, and all of us must go into hiding. Thank you.
22: I'm John Gregory Dunn, uh, I'm gonna read uh, a bit from... Uh, a grown and troubled Saladin Chamcha in London thinks of Zini Vakil, the first Indian woman he'd ever made love to, a woman he had tried to look back to, the bom- to Bombay once, who had told him that the English bastards, they really screwed you up. Chamcha chose Lucretius over Avid, the inconstant soul, the mutability of everything, das every last speck. A being going through life can become so other to himself as to be another, discreet, severed from history. He thought at times of Zeni, Vakil, and the other planet Bombay at the far rim of the galaxy, Zeni, eclecticism, hybridity. The optimism of those ideas, the certainty in which they rested of will, of choice, but zini mind, life just happens to you like an accident. No, it happens to you as a result of your condition. Not choice, but at best, process, and at worst, shocking and total change. Newness, he had sought a different kind, but this was what he got. Bitterness, too, and hatred of all those coarse things. He would enter into his new life. He would be what he had become, loud, stench. still and clear but one day he would soon be able to call it by its name I am he accepted that I am submission
23: we've received uh, a great many messages of support and I, I want to just uh, we've received a great many messages of support uh, and, uh, from people who can't be with us today and I, I want to just read one of them that seemed to me rather touching. It's from uh, James Michener who's in Florida The recent behavior of Muslim leaders throughout the world has been a painful embarrassment to me. Years ago, I wrote a short essay, Islam, the Misunderstood Religion, an ecumenical defense of that faith. The essay was widely reprinted and circulated throughout the Muslim world, making me a kind of champion of their beliefs. In later years, I lived in or visited extensively every Muslim nation except Saudi Arabia. As a result of these visits, I came to know that world as intimately as an outsider could. I was awed by the strength, vitality, and wide variation of Islam. But the current calls for the assassination of foreigners whom the Muslim leadership does not like are a fearful error and a step back to the time of the Crusades. Three days ago, in a shopping mall in Miami, a friend of mine saw a fiery-eyed young man picketing a bookstore with a sign in Arabic. My friend could read Arabic. The sign said, assassinate the writer uh, the letter continues with an expression of his support for our meeting and wish that he could be here uh, but I, I read it not only because I'm pleased that, that Michener sent it to us but uh, because I, I want us to remember that there are some visible signs of the fear that intimidates uh, not just what we're reading um, in, in the newspapers and, and hearing on television uh, I, nevertheless, want to express my uh, very strong support for two of the things that have been said by the previous speakers. Uh, first of all, what Robert Caro said in, uh, as a criticism of Bush's statement. Some of you may know that, that uh, Penn has sent a letter calling for Bush to, to make a statement uh, a couple of days ago. It was, was printed in a number of newspapers in full. And what Mr. Caro said was, uh, well, what are our leaders waiting for? Are we really waiting for a bomb to go off in a bookstore? Or, God forbid, uh, any violence be done to anyone, uh, publishers, their employees, uh, uh, the writer himself? Uh, The violence has already taken place, a violence very much worth protesting and which our meeting is protesting, a violence uh, that intimidates, a moral violence, a psychological violence, People are intimidated. It's normal that they're intimidated by this kind of fear. Uh, It will make it harder to write transgressively. What has happened, even if we make the wonderful assumption that the good guys always win, the Voltaire's of this world always do prevail, even if we make that, I think, extremely dubious assumption uh, that the right side, the force of enlightenment, is always vindicated, Still, violence has been done, injury has been done, and it will not uh, uh, cease simply by the abating of these threats. So we have a great deal to be upset about and to protest about. Uh, We don't have to wait for actual physical violence. The most important violence, which is moral, political, psychological, has already taken place, and it injures our ability to communicate with each other freely, uh, it injures our rights as free and thinking people. I want, therefore, to uh, urge my uh, urge upon you to support the, the initiative that was uh, proposed by Christopher Hitchens. That as many of you as want to uh, associate yourself with the declaration, which, uh, for which Penn uh, is willing to receive the signatures. And what that would consist of, I mean, I don't have an exact wording here, uh, but it would say, in effect, in, in, in Christopher's phrase, we, we want to wear the yellow star with Salman Rushdie, that we want to asso- associate ourselves and express our solidarity and complicity with the author and his publishers in their right, right, R-I-G-H-T, to write... WRI right to publish, to, to disseminate the book. We want to express our solidarity and complicity and co-responsibility with the writing and the, the, the right to write and disseminate this book. Uh, uh, since uh, Christopher Hitchens made this suggestion, we've had some ad hoc uh, signature uh, collecting up here, and most of the people... Uh, who are participating in the program and some other friends and colleagues up here have, uh, have signed it already. And that include, and I, the, 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 some names are missing just because uh, uh, we didn't get to talk to them. Couldn't make our way past the journalists. But it includes um, Diana Trilling, Norman Mailer, E.L. Doctorow, Don DeLillo, um, Joan Juliet Buck, Carl Bernstein, David Reif, Christopher Hitchens, of course, Leon Wieseltier, uh, John Gregory Dunn, Lionel Tiger, uh, Francis Fitzgerald, uh, Gay Talese, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, if you want to, uh, we're not going to stand here and, and, and collect the signatures now, but send your signature or communicate uh, uh, to us uh, at Penn. Uh, we want to publish a statement, which as many uh, writers and readers and members of the literary community sign, uh, sign a statement, which we will formulate declaring ourselves a uh, in solidarity with and morally co-responsible uh, uh, with the writer and his publishers for the right to write and to publish and disseminate this book. And uh, get on the case of your booksellers. That's the immediate practical thing that we have to do to get this book back in the stores. Thank you very much for being with us. Excuse
8: me, we have asked the participants to remain for the press people who would like to to chat with them or spend a little time, and we're asking that the audience members leave through the exit that they came in. Thank you very much.
0: President of the Authors Guild, we welcome you here uh, to uh, hear a report on some, uh, a dialogue which has been going on over the past uh, ten days, which we hope will contribute something toward resolving one of the most important questions that American authors and American Muslims have faced in a uh, good many years. I would like to um, give you a little bit of background to how we're going to conduct this meeting, introduce uh, the authors at the table, and then uh, turn the uh, meeting with microphone over to uh, Dr. Martin, Sheikh Martin, who will introduce the Muslim uh, members at the head table, and we will go on from there. We will have two statements, and I think uh, copies of those have been circulated. The first, by written by norman mailer on behalf of the authors who participated in this meeting we asked uh, mr mailer to write this and we all subscribe to um, what he says then we will have a statement by mr saeed on behalf of the muslim members of our dialogue uh, and then we will go to answer we will try to answer any questions that you have um, directing them to whomever you wish on the panel and giving that person time to get up here for the microphone. Um, to introduce the authors on the panel, starting at the far end, J. Anthony Lucas, uh, American author and secretary of the Authors Guild, uh, Norman Mailer, American author, uh, past president of Penn, and myself, I'm Robert Massey, the president of Penn now I'll turn this microphone over to Dr. Martinez. Oh, I want to, I want to make one other, one other, one other um, explanation. Uh, Susan Sontag, the President of Penn, uh, is not here only because she was not present at these meetings because of uh, other commitments, um, but uh, Norman is past President of Penn, and this meeting is sponsored jointly by Penn, American Center, the Authors Guild, and the American Muslim Action Committee. Have I I said everything? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm in very big trouble. Uh, (laughs) Letty Cotton Pogrebin, a member of the board of the Authors Guild, who participated in these in these meetings, is is on my right
24: greetings for peace you. to you all I would like to take this opportunity to introduce the members of the Muslim leadership present here who will participate in providing all the answers they can have on the left of Bob Massey is Sayyid Zafaruddin bin who Committee or a coalition formed specifically for this issue by all the mosques and the organizations in this area and some of the national organizations have joined the Action Committee to back it up for the purpose of effectively dealing with the situation that we are faced with in these times. Next to Zapar Saeed is His Excellency Dar Asad. assad he is the UN representative for the NGO called the Rabita Alam Islami, which is the Muslim World League. He also has another hat as the president of the Council of Mosques, which is a, like the National Council of Churches, all the mosques have their own organizations to which they belong to. Next to Daldasa, is imam siraj wahaj imam is the imam of the mosque masjid at taqwa the mosque of the piety in brooklyn he is also belongs to an organization called islamic leadership organization and has been very active in other social scenes specifically drug-related cleanup of this area and imam wahaj yeah, thank you, yeah. And myself, I'm Chef Moizur Mateen. I'm the chairman of Mateen Foundation, who has facilitated the Muslims and the authors to come together. Now I will request Norman Mailer to come and read his statement.
20: extraordinary times for the literary community, rallying against peril to one of our own. startling discoveries were made. We had a faith and it was absolute. We were ready to take a mortal stand on the supreme value of freedom of expression. In this period, this historic period of obsessive questions and few answers, it remains our only common faith. Last week, we discovered all over again that we not only believe in the power of words and our willingness to conceivably suffer for them, but that our voices could take effect. Two giant chains of booksellers reversed their ground. Needless to remark, the center of the problem remained untouched. The beleaguered situation of Salman Rushdie had hardly disappeared. On this basis, a few of us from the literary community met twice last week with leaders of the Muslim community from New York, the US, and abroad. On each occasion, both sides did their mutual best to narrow the gap between their conflicting positions. This was, on the face of it, an all but hopeless negotiation, since both points of view were philosophically fixed. Concerning the freedom to speak out, whether such speech was right or wrong, wicked or well-intentioned, wise or foolish, our point of view was and would remain absolute. Literature had to remain at liberty to speak its mind no matter of the cost. At the heart of the concept of free speech rests the idea that error does not always beget rest the idea that error does not always beget error, nor truth inevitably create more truth. Indeed, if it did, literature would have little reason to exist. Evil, like good, also suffers the turns and twists of perversity, and ill-inspired action can incite good if unexpected result. It was part of our fundamental position that a work like the Satanic Verses might, in the long reach of history, Strengthen the Muslim faith as easily as weaken it. For Western readers, the book, rich, complex, poetic, and sardonic, could prove paradoxically an introduction to the rich, poetic, and powerfully spiritual concepts of Islam. Certainly, it is safe to assume that for every, every expert copy of the satanic verses that will be sold as a result of this tempest of media attention, Ten volumes of the Koran will eventually reach new cosmopolitan readers. Rushdie's work, after all, while seen by Islamic eyes as blasphemous, nonetheless introduces the Western reader to the incredibly varied tapestry and all-encompassing dreams and visions within Muslim life. Such, in summary, was our position. In turn, the Muslim leaders with whom we had our dialogue demonstrated convincingly to us how prodigiously painful an assault on their feelings was the satanic verses. If the first concern of many a Christian is whether he or she dwells in a state of grace or suffers the absence of grace. If devout, devout Jews believe so intensely in respecting the Torah and the Midrash that the, Torah, that the Talmud, this is a misprint, the Talmud builds not a fence around any untoward or less impulse but indeed a fence around a fence. So we on our side in this dialogue with the Muslims came to understand the force of the dichotomy between honor and shame for Islamic people. We were obliged therefore to recognize that our faith had injured another faith that would not weaken our conviction. Absolutes by their existence are finally impervious to casualties but it would remind us that when all is said, we too practice a grave and serious faith which also contains the power to injure others. On their side, the Muslims who suggested that we meet convinced us that they are as unhappy with the prospect of terrorism as we are. They too will be injured by it. On this, we could agree. While the philosophical gap between us can hardly be said to have been closed appreciably, nonetheless, There is this much community of opinion between our opposite positions. We are able to recognize each other as serious protagonists and can respect one another for attempting to comprehend the inner dictates of a faith wholly different from our own. It is one thing when such interfaith conferences occur as pietistic colloquies. It is another when we meet, it is another when we meet on that darkling plain where ideologies, rather than ignorant armies, are ready to clash. Illumined by rival moons, it is our mutual, if delicate hope, that oncoming tragedies will be diverted by dint of human encounter and widening dialogues. In this spirit, we salute those Muslim leaders who would also look for peace in the midst of serious pain. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I'm Silya Zafr the chairman of the American Action, American Muslim Action Committee. In the name of Allah, most beneficent, ever merciful. We bear witness that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. May God's peace and blessings be upon you all. It is clear to all of us that the issue of the satanic verses has become a potential ground for worldwide confrontation. It is equally clear that we all must act in a responsible manner to solve this problem. As regards the satanic verses, the Muslim view is very clear. The author has applied the most irreverent approach to deal with with what is most sacred to the hearts of one million Muslims of the world. We believe he has done it knowingly and purposely. We communicated this view to the publisher in very clear terms, well before the book was published. Thousands of Muslims and their organizations, along with their leadership, appealed to the publisher to stay away from their plans to publish this book. The publisher chose not to respond to these appeals. It is now an acknowledged fact that it has not only offended and outraged Muslims all over the world, it has actually led to the loss of Muslim lives and caused serious injuries to many Muslims in different parts of the world. To say, as the media has projected, that the protest is being staged by fundamentalist Muslims is a complete distortion of facts. Every Muslim heart is grieved. Every Muslim soul is saddened. We are all offended and outraged. We want the American people to know and understand that it is not just their faith and the prophets that have been the victims of defamation, distortion, and ridicule but also the Muslims as a whole have been belittled, insulted and humiliated. All this was done without any need and... No community with any sense of dignity will allow itself to be subjected to this kind of treatment. Muslims are determined to strive with strength to redress the situation. There are people who think that Muslims are demanding a ban on the book and advocating censorship in the United States. This is a serious misrepresentation of our approach. All civilized societies have well-established norms of social and moral responsibility. We all must abide by these expectations. Any disregard of these norms, particularly of the kind manifested in the case of the satanic verses should be adequately addressed. There are also people who believe that our basic concerns are inconsistent with the provisions of the freedom of speech and expression. This is also incorrect. Muslims firmly uphold the basic principles of freedom of thought and expression. These are the cardinal principles of Islamic faith and practice. Investigation, inquiry, and challenge are fully encouraged and admired in Islam. And differences of opinion and their expression, even in the domain of religious thought, is considered a blessing from God, our Creator. Therefore, we consider that the basic provisions of the First Amendment are in full accord with the fundamental principles of Islam. We want to reiterate that Islam does not permit slandering and name-calling and prohibits violence, both within and between communities. At the same time, we see a clear need on the part of many in the West to be aware of these and other such values among Muslims around the world. In Islam, the profound and the profane, the sacred and the sacrilegious, are distinct and clear. Islam needs to be understood on its own terms. In conclusion, once again, we state that this is a matter of concern for Muslims throughout the world With due recognition to our strong feelings about the book, we urge our Muslim brothers and sisters here and abroad and their leadership to exercise patience and restraint, to seek non-violent but resolute means to bring this volatile issue to a peaceful, dignified, and satisfactory conclusion we appeal to our representatives in the united states congress and government officials to refrain from taking such actions that may further aggravate the situation we invite our non-muslim brethren and their leadership to join with us in working towards this end towards this end such an effort would result in much needed goodwill and understanding It is in this spirit that we have joined with this distinguished group present here from the writers of America. We pray to God that may He, in His infinite mercy, give us patience and bless us all with guidance and enlightenment through these difficult times. Amen.
0: Before we take questions, um, two things. First, I want to say what I should have said in the beginning. But this dialogue, which uh, uh, we have had, and of which you're hearing the uh, fruits at the moment, was initiated by uh, uh, Sheikh Mateen uh, some two weeks ago. Um, telephone call to the Authors Guild, and we met it uh, immediately. We can give you more details about that. Uh, uh, so sort of the history of this uh, later if you like Um, is there anyone at the table before you take questions who uh, would like to supplement or or add to uh, the two statements Tony I want
17: to say that these two meetings have been the most remarkable dialogue, in which I think I've ever participated we recognized from the start that formidable differences divided us. Neither of us was willing to retreat a single pace from principle. And both groups, I think, recognized the formidable perils which lurked in this confrontation. And we set out to see if we could find some swatch of common ground on which we stand. And I think really that we have done that to a remarkable degree, Uh, which I think Norman has captured eloquently in his picture of two faiths, each with a capacity to injure each other, but each with a possibility to stir powerful redemptive feelings in readers and worshippers alike.
21: Thank you.
7: Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you all. I just want to say that Islamic religion is Islamic of tolerance, Islamic of peace, because the name of Islam is peace. And we are against violence, against terrorism. And I am guided by the Quran, our holy book. I remember the verses which says, if anybody kills a soul, whether it's a human or He had killed the whole human being and if he had saved one soul he would save he would have saved the whole human beings and with this verses we are commanded by our holy book that we sit down and dialogue with our brothers the people of the book Christian and jews because god not only like that but he ordered us to do that in the quran and there are so many verses that i could record many so that with this spirit that we got together, and I hope and pray that this uproar will come to an end. I'm sure we will do Thank you.
0: I think the best way to do this is to uh, direct your question specifically to uh, uh, someone at the head table. If uh, you're not sure who you would like to uh, answer it, uh, you can okay. ask Dr. Mateen and he will refer it, or, um, or I, I will. Um, I suppose that um, since there's so many hands up, I should probably stay here and just, and just point. We'll get to everybody. We'll talk to you. Uh, Dr. Sonny, uh can you tell
25: me what you're talking stand would you, up? Would the person yeah. who asked
0: the question stand up and <laughs> turn so that the other people in the hear? have been I here?
14: Identify you. yourself. Ask, may I ask you, Dr. Saeed, when you talk about non-violence you know, for Muslims to show restraint in this in their reaction, does this mean that Muslims are calling for the rescinding of the death threat against uh, Rushdie, or is this a separate affair? Are you talking about protest or the death threat? Yeah.
4: people who are reading the newspapers are aware whatever is going on at the international scene. And here we feel, and we are very clear in terms of our approach, that we would not like to be digressed by questions that are coming to people's mind from what is going on in the rest of the world. What we are saying that we are taking an approach in a way, and we are working with different groups in a way, that it will gradually come to a peaceful conclusion. That is our approach. And I don't think that it will be of any help if I say we are asking for the sending of death threat, we are asking for it to, be, to remain in place. I don't think we'll get anywhere. Our position is very clear. We want to work together with all the groups to bring this issue to a peaceful conclusion. Thank you.
18: Gabe. Okay. Uh,
7: my name is Gates Taliesin. I'm a member of the 10. Uh, Dr. Saeed, in the statement that you read to us,
18: you say that the Muslim position does not permit slandering and name-calling, whereas in this country, under our First Amendment freedom of expression, we certainly do tolerate name-calling, and slandering, most particularly with people in public life. And I wonder how we can ever have an understanding when we're so diametrically opposed with regard to that one issue, to say nothing of your mistakenly prohibitive violence. And I wonder, as point two, my, the second part of my question, how uh, we can accept to commit violence when we have been so aware that violence is promised upon a writer who has written so painfully.
4: I think that's where exactly we have made the point. We have made the point that in Islam we do not permit. It's very clear, okay, and we have made that statement. There is no permission for slandering and name-calling Leave aside the religious personality, we are talking about between normal people. It's very clear in Islam that you do not call names, you do not slander people who are either living or dead. That's very clear as far as we are concerned. If in this society, for whatever reason, that has become a norm, we feel that it is our responsibility as Muslims to bring out the Islamic values, let the world know what we stand for, and if the world wants to change according to our values, according to our norms, there shouldn't be any problem with uh, anybody here. And that's where we are uh, saying that violence is not what Islam has prescribed in terms of communication with the rest of the world. Brother Dawood has pointed out, no life can be taken without a just reason. That is the basic tenet of Islamic principles. Now, you will have your approach in terms of what is just and what is not. Islam stands for its norms and standards in terms of what is just and what is not. And I don't think that this is a platform where we can discuss and resolve these differences. We can only identify where we stand, and from there, hopefully, we'll try to bridge the gaps that are existing. Thank you. Um, I
0: actually
26: have two questions for Mr. Sayed.
0: Can you speak up and tell people who you An are? Vivian Walt from
26: um, I have two questions for Mr. Sayed. You said that you didn't want Congress to act irresponsibly.
7: because you give us some idea of what would constitute a responsible action? And also, are there similar initiatives going on in Britain between Muslims and writers and uh, perhaps...? uh I
4: think you can very well recognize that we are trying to reach every segment of the American population within our limited resources and within our limited, you know, uh, access. And we will continue to do that. We feel that it's extremely important for Muslims to communicate with every other group in the United States for the American Muslims, In terms of government taking any action or the Congress getting involved with this, we have very clearly in mind that if they pass resolutions that are going to make things worse than to help to improve it, that will not be what we would like to see. I don't think it would be appropriate for any government official to give a statement that will aggravate the situation that's already there. I think we all, as I have indicated at the beginning of my statement, must act responsibly to bring this to a peaceful conclusion and not heighten tension and cause more confrontation. That's what we have in mind when we are appealing to our representatives in the U.S. Congress and the uh, government of uh, the United States. Is that addressed to me? <laughs> uh, yes.
7: Uh, Dr. Saeed, uh, my name is Sanford Friedman, uh, American citizen. In your statement... Uh, You say there are people who think that Muslims are demanding a ban on the book and advocating censorship in the United States. Uh, If that isn't so, what in fact would you like? How can the American writers and the American people accommodate your position?
4: Again, we have made it very clear the whole world has seen that the publication has been extremely. Uh, distorting in terms of the historical facts. It has defend, uh Islam in many ways. It has projected Islam in the most negative colors. We have a review by one of our Muslim writers that has been made available to you. I hope you will be able to look into it. What we are saying that at this stage if the publishers act responsibly to solve the situation in a way that will be satisfactory to everyone, they should withdraw the publication as the first step. And they should avoid publishing this here or anywhere else in English or in any other language. That is our position. I know and I can recognize that most of you cannot see that the way we see it. Most of you would not agree with us, the way we stand on this issue, but that is our
7: position. Just a follow-up question. I really, it is very hard for me to understand the distinction between withdrawing the book, as you suggest the publisher do, and uh, banning or censoring the (laughs) book.
27: The Jewish Defense League, they don't speak, they don't speak for the Jews, they don't speak for all the the Jews. And while the Jews of the Jewish Defense League might want to censor Minister Farrakhan, who said some very negative things to the Jews, while some Jews from the Defense League might want to censor him, might want to blow up the places, who might want to listen to Minister Farrakhan, yet that is not the view of all the Jews. So therefore, we have this, I think we're left with this dilemma, Viking press. You made a decision. You have to make a decision whether as a result of the climate of the world might we pull the book back to you. It may be that this is your way of life. You can't pull it back. We respect that. You have to live with that. I am hoping, we are hoping that right now the problems in the world is not escalating. I feel very, very bad. I don't want Anything to happen, people to lose their lives, I don't want it to happen. I want bookstores blown up and publishers blocked. We do not want that to happen. The question is now, what can we all do together to stop that? And I think the media has a responsibility. One of the things I would say, I would suggest as I sit down, the media could do is this. While you love to publish, because I guess it's a story, the statements of Ayatollah Khomeini, there are so many other Muslims that are making so many statements that are directly opposed to that. You won't give it coverage. We had a meeting, a press conference last Friday. Very few people came to cover it. It was a national Muslim group, and they made some very specific statements. But yet, you look in the newspapers, we didn't see it. Why? Because I don't think that you are playing the role of peacemaker, and you can't play that role. You can help us, and I'm, I'm making an appeal to the media to also let us help to to uh, uh, defuse some of the problems that we are facing. Thank you.
0: Uh, two more questions. Uh, I'm Roland Algrind. I represent the Association of American Publishers. Um,
4: I, I think that. Um, as publishers, we have respect for both sides of what... Let me ask said. you, are you making a statement or asking... Oh, I'm making a question, but it's from both sides. Yes. Uh, in the middle of what the Muslim group is saying and the
11: authors are saying are the publishers and the booksellers. Uh, my question is, can the
4: two groups come together in effect in order to create an atmosphere where the publishers and booksellers who are basically the messengers of thought and the messengers of carrying its ex- free expression... Should not be endangered in any way. In other words, is that an area where you can all agree at least and make a statement? So we do. So so you me. can <laughs> see
24: your audience. The last question. <laughs> I think you gently mentioned the word sensitivity, which is much in the media concerning the Muslims. My question is to Mr. Miller. Would you have taken a book that was written about, similar to the book of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is so anti-Jewish, and come with your group and read it because the Jews who opposed, uh, opposed, that book, and uh, uh, somebody threatened the, the, the author? So,
20: I would say that uh, we would be obliged to the principle of freedom of expression is paramount for us the insult I think in a funny way for many Jews would be small by now because the protocols of the elders of Zion is not a work of any literary magnitude Uh, we would defend it as the example of how far we are willing to go in defense of freedom of expression. We would detest doing it. It would be terribly unpleasant for us, but we would defend it. Uh, the, there are great differences between the Satanic Verses and, and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Uh, one is a piece of propaganda that's short and defamatory and ugly in spirit. The Satanic Verses is a complex work written by a literary man who has moved from the Muslim faith to, let us say, a, a western a much more western point of view he serves as a bridge for us in the west between uh, the world of Islam and ourselves and so while I am perfectly prepared, as I have said I came to recognize how profoundly offensive uh, that book was to the people of the Islamic faith nonetheless for us it must be understood that it does not bother us with that kind of intensity, it cannot what we find instead is, oh my lord this world of Islam is vastly more interesting than I ever thought it was you see, we don't have to accept the book exactly as written if it uh, uh, we don't accept it as gospel Uh, the satanic verses is is in no way our Quran it it is in no way our notion of uh, this is the only way it can be we read very critically we read most critically as a result we read it and we interpret it uh, there are many people who don't like the book at all they think it's, it's an overwritten and impenetrable book uh, but as far as uh, so well it, it seems to me I, I think
0: I've answered your question thank you but, uh, me. double standard there. Uh, Dr. Martin, did you or any Mr. Um, Page have anything sure. uh, you want to add? Or me? Yeah. I, I I said that that was the last question. I think I should stick to it. I'm sure he would be happy to, to answer it in private. Um, no, no further questions. Thank you very much for coming. Put the end of that.
3: Thank you all for coming. I know it was on rather short notice. I'm Joanne Lita Mackerman and I'm president of Penn Center at USA West, one of two centers of international Penn in the United States and one of 90 centers worldwide. Penn, as most of you in this room know, is the only worldwide writer's organization committed to freedom of expression. We've gathered here this evening to protest the unprecedented intimidation and censorship of a writer, Salman Rushdie and his book, The Satanic Verses. Rushdie has been the target of a death threat by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who has put a bounty on his life and on the lives of his publisher and editor. His book has been taken off the shelves in hundreds of stores across the country out of fear. While there are many issues which should be discussed surrounding the publication of The Satanic Verses, and Penn Center USA West hopes to hold a larger public event in the near future, which would include much fuller participation by the Muslim community and in fact today we've been in touch with a group of Muslim writers who are very interested in being part of such an event who protest the death threats but also have great difficulty with the book. But tonight we're gathered to show our solidarity and our commitment to the fundamental freedom of writers to write and to publish without the threat <coughs> of death and for readers to choose the books that they would buy without similar threats of violence. We're not here to judge literary merit or to dismiss the offense the Muslim community has felt over the Satanic Verses. But we're here to commend the writers, publishers, and booksellers who have spoken out and stood firm for literary freedom, especially the booksellers who have kept the book on the shelves. It will be a while, I think, before we can assess the long-term consequences of this unprecedented situation. The potential self-censorship the possible censorship in the publishing industry and the book selling industry, the political ramifications between nations, and perhaps most insidious, the potential for an igniting of prejudice within our own communities. It's essential that free forums of ideas be allowed and that the right to dissent and disagreement be protected and the interchange of ideas take place without fear. As a group We hope that our collective voice will have an impact, and yet that impact is at best hard to measure. As writers, however, we know that the terrain of literature is first and foremost the individual heart. It is here where the novelist begins, where vision and imagination can transform hatred and fear. It is here where each individual must begin in order to assure that the seeds of prejudice and fear do not take root. Tonight's program will include readings from several of Salman Rushdie's books. We thought it important to show the breadth and depth of this writer. He's a writer who has written many books. But before we move to that part of the program, I'd like to introduce the editor of the Los Angeles Times Book Review and an advisory board member of Penn Center USA West, Jack Miles. Jack is also on the board of the National Book Critics Circle, which is sponsoring this event with Penn. Jack?
28: Thank you, Joanne. We thought it uh, important to set as broad a cultural context for uh, our readings this evening as as possible. And so we are privileged and happy to have with us Professor Carl W. Ernst from Pomona College, who is uh, an expert on the Indo-Muslim culture. He's also the author of the article on blasphemy in the Macmillan Encyclopedia of Religion, and of a book entitled words of ecstasy in Sufism. Carl, can you tell us uh, why Salman Rushdie's book The Satanic Verses has uh, caused such offense to Muslims? Surely other anti-Muslim books uh, have been written and published in the West. Why has this one been singled out?
29: Well, most obviously the book is uh, satirical and uh, mocking in regard to the Prophet Muhammad and this causes a particular offense to Muslims. It's uh, hard, perhaps, for Westerners to realize the tremendous uh, love and uh, admiration which Muslims express towards Muhammad, but it, uh, it really hurts their feelings quite badly. Uh, in addition, um, the book does have a mischievous spirit. There's no question about that. There's a passage in which Rushdie refers to, he describes a poet in the mythical city of Jahiliya, a satirist who makes his living by uh, writing... Uh, wicked satires, and uh, he's described as this. If rivers of blood flow from the cuts his verses inflict, then they will nourish him. But I think, most importantly, this book represents a kind of deculturation. Salman Rushdie has lost the ties with his community, and uh, that that would have enabled him to to feel the problems that have been engendered, and so I think to Muslims he represents the threat of the triumph of colonialism over their own cultures.
28: Can you tell us uh, uh, what Muslims understand by uh, the words blasphemy or apostasy or some of these other semi-theological terms that we've been hearing?
29: Well, blasphemy is a a crime in Islamic law. Uh, However, it is usually treated as a religious crime, and the punishments are religious, including annulment of marriage, of uh, rituals, and the like. Uh, It crosses the border into heresy uh, when it becomes a political crime that is treated as treason against the state. And this is where I think the uh, death warrant by Ayatollah Khomeini uh, reveals its political character. It's an attempt to extend the authority of, of Khomeini beyond the confines of Iran and Shi'i Islam to speak for the, for the Muslim world at large. It's a very political statement.
28: Uh, on, on what basis, uh, perhaps, you've named it, uh, would it be possible to make an approach to the Muslim world in Muslim terms, but in defense of Salman Rushdie?
29: Well, it's not possible to erase the uh, unfortunate relations that the U.S. has had with uh, Iran. But uh, beyond the um, defensible and uh, necessary defense of freedom of the press, I think it is important that uh, writers and intellectuals, Americans, and others who wish to uh, try to communicate with the Muslim community, they must express some kind of genuine interest in dialogue, in learning, in, in reading, and to uh, try to create the kind of climate where we can avoid these sorts of confrontations in the future.
28: Is there anything you would uh, to add in closing?
29: Uh, I think we're seeing uh, a crisis point in the cultural encounter between Islamic countries and the West. And uh, this is a real difficult test case. I think if we uh, handle this well, we may have a, uh, a better future in store for us, but, uh, I sincerely hope that we can avoid any kind of uh, tragedy.
28: Thank you. We now come to the heart of our program, a reading of passages from several of Salman Rushdie's work, not just from the Satanic Verses. The first two readings will be by T.C. Boyle and Lawrence Thornton, both novelists, the authors of most Recently, of uh, their last two books, World's End and Imagining Argentina, Mr. Boyle will read first.
30: Well, thank you. Um, it's not often that I'm pried out from my crevice. In fact, this is the first time. But uh, I feel very strongly on this issue and felt that I might add my voice to uh, the readings tonight. Um I haven't read the new book by Salman Rushdie and uh, probably won't have the luxury of doing that for several months to come, although I hope it will be available for me. Um, I'm now working on a novel myself, and I don't have to explain to this audience how difficult it is to read an extended work of fiction when you're trying to do one yourself. Um, I have read two of the earlier books, though, and uh, I would like to read you uh, two very brief passages from a book called The Jaguar Smile, which came out about three years ago. Uh, it's a book of journalism, and uh, Rushdie apparently was invited by the Sandinista government to come as a partisan to Nicaragua and report on the revolution there. Um, I find this interesting in the context of what's happened uh, recently because this book appeared in America, got mixed reviews, and wasn't much known, and sort of disappeared. Um, it, uh, its position is antithetical to what the position of the Reagan government was at the time. Um, I think it shows that uh, free press is vital and alive in America. Um, I found this particular book when I was living in Ireland about two years ago. I was living in a little town called Skibbereen, and um, the library there was the size of the interior of a Honda car, and it consisted on the shelves of 17 copies of the Thornbirds, and uh, one copy of a Compendium of Hemingway well, what better chance to reread For Whom the Bell Tolls? So I read it after a a 20-year lapse and decided that it needed a sequel set in Nicaragua. And uh, in order to do a little research in Nicaragua, I chose Rushdie's book and a couple of others. He's talked about the FSLN and so on in this, and it was a wonderful source of information for me. Without uh, any further prologue, I'd, I'd like to read you a little bit from his introduction and then one tiny piece of the book itself, which I think has... Uh, some ramifications for what has happened recently. This is from The Jaguar Smile. Ten years ago, when I was living in a small flat above an off-license in SW1, I learned that the big house next door had been bought by the wife of the dictator of Nicaragua, Anastasio Somoza de Baile. The street was obviously going down in the world, but with the murder of the nanny Sandra Rivette by the nice Lord Luckin at number 44, and I moved out a few months later. I never met Hope Samosa, but her house became notorious in the street for a burglar alarm that went off with surprising frequency, and for the occasional parties that would cause the street to be jammed solid with Rolls-Royce, Mercedes-Benz, and Jaguar limousines. Back in Nicaragua, her husband, Tacho, had taken a mistress, Dinora, and Hope was no doubt trying to keep her spirits up. Tacho and Dinora fled Nicaragua on 17 July 1979, so that Nicaragua Libre was born exactly one month after my own son. 19 July is the formal independence day, because that was when the Sandinistas entered Managua, but the 17th is the real hat-in-the-air moment, the Dio de Alegria, the day of joy. I've always had a weakness for synchronicity, and I felt that the proximity of the birthdays forged a bond. When the Reagan administration began its war against Nicaragua, I recognized a deeper affinity with that small country on a continent, Central America, upon, upon which I had never set foot. I grew daily more interested in its affairs because, after all, I was myself the child of a successful revolt against the great power, my consciousness the product of the triumph of the Indian Revolution. It was perhaps also true that those of us who did not have our origins in the countries of the mighty West or North had something in common, not certainly anything as simplistic as a unified third world outlook, but at least some knowledge of what weakness was like, some awareness of the view from underneath and of how it felt to be there on the bottom, looking up at the descending heel. I became a sponsor of the Nicaragua Solidarity Campaign in London. I mention this to declare an interest. When I finally visited Nicaragua in July of 1986, I did not go as a wholly neutral observer. I was not a blank slate." That's from the introduction. He admits that he's gone as a partisan to report on the revolution. Uh, I would like to read you just a few more paragraphs from the text of the book itself. I think you may find it interesting in light of what's happened. I don't think this needs an introduction. I got talking to a group of five campesinos during their lunch break. They parked their machetes by hacking them into a tree stump, but brought their AKs along. Did they know anyone who had joined the Contra? They knew of kidnaps, they said. But how about someone who had joined voluntarily? No, they didn't. The people were afraid of the Contra. One of the campesinos, Umberto, a small man with a big-toothed smile, was an indigene, but he wasn't sure what sort. He wasn't mosquito or sumo, he knew that. I'm trying to find out what I am. He had lived in the north, in the area now evacuated. The Contra, he said, had kidnapped him, threatened to kill him, but he had escaped. A while later, he heard that they were still after him and intended to recapture him. This time, they'd have killed me for sure. So he was delighted to be resettled. It was hard at first, but for me, it was a blessing, he said. He sat close to a matchstick-thin man with wiry black hair sticking out sideways from beneath his peaked cap. The same happened to me, this man, Rigoberto, said. Just the same story. Me too. Another of the quintet came from a coastal fishing community where there had been no possibility of getting any land. The other two were locals. So, do you think of this now as your home, I asked, or does it seem like just some temporary place? Arturo, the defense organizer, answered, what do you mean? We've put our sweat into this earth. We've risked our lives for it. We're making our lives here. What do you mean? Of course it's home. It's our first home, the fisherman, the oldest of the five at around 50, said. He was called Horacio, and as I listened to him, the penny dropped. What he had said, and what the indigene Umberto had told me, I'm trying to find out what I am, were both connected to Father Molina's servant in Riguero, to the idea that one's own country can be a place of exile, can be Egypt or Babylon. That, in fact, Somosista, Nicaragua, had literally not been these people's home, and that the revolution had really been an act of migration for the locals as well as the resettled men. They were inventing their country, and more than that, themselves. It was by belonging here that Umberto might actually discover what he was. I said, you're lucky. The idea of home had never stopped being a problem for me. They didn't understand that, though, and why should they? Nobody was shooting at me. Thank you.
31: I too am here in support of Salman Rusty. And I think the best thing I can do is to to read from the magnificent beginning of Midnight's Children, his first novel, which touches in, in some rather Profoundly ironic ways on questions that have been raised within the last few weeks. This is from the chapter called The Pepperated Sheep. I was born in the city of Bombay once upon a time. No, that won't do. There's no getting away from the date. I was born in Dr. Nalakar's nursing home on August 15th, 1947. The time, the time matters too. Well then, at night, no, it's important to be more on the stroke of midnight, as a matter of fact. Clock hands joined palms in respectful greeting as I came. Oh, spell it out, spell it out at the precise instant of India's arrival at independence. I tumbled forth into the world. There were gasps, and outside the window, fireworks and crowds. A few seconds later, my father broke his big toe, but his accident was a mere trifle when set aside what had befallen me in the benighted moment, because thanks to the occult tyrannies of those blandly saluting clocks, I had been mysteriously handcuffed to history, my destinies indissolubly chained to those of my country. For the next three decades, there was to be no escape. Soothsayers had prophesied me, newspapers celebrated my arrival, Politicos ratified my authenticity I was left entirely without a say in the matter I, Selene Sinai, later variously called Snot Nose, Stained Face, Baldy, Sniffer, Buddha, and even Piece of the Moon Had become heavily embroiled in fate At the best of times, a dangerous sort of involvement And I couldn't even wipe my own nose at the time Now, however, time, having no further use for me Is running out I will soon be 31 years old perhaps, if my crumbling, overused body <coughs> permits. But I have no hope of saving my life, nor can I count on having even a thousand nights And a night. I must work fast, faster than Scheherazade, if I'm an end-up meaning, yes, meaning something. I admit it, above all things, I fear absurdity. And there are so many stories to tell, too many such an excess of intertwined lives, events, miracles, places, rumors, so dense a commingling of the improbable and the mundane. I have been a swallower of lives, and to know me, just the one of me, you'll have to swallow a lot as well. Consumed multitudes are jostling and shoving inside me, and guided only by the memory of a large white bedsheet with a roughly circular hole some seven inches in diameter cut into the center. Clutching at the dream of that wholly mutilated square of linen which is my talisman, my open sesame, I must commence the business of remaking my life from the point at which it really began some thirty-two years before anything as obvious, as present, as my clock-ridden, crime-stained birth. The sheet, incidentally, is stained, too, with three drops of old, faded redness as the Quran tells us, recite in the name of the Lord thy creator who created man from clots of blood. One Kashmiri morning in the early spring of 1915, my grandfather, Dan Assis, hid his nose against a frost-hardened tussock of earth while attempting to pray. Three drops of blood plopped out of his left nostril, hardened instantly in the brittle air, and lay before his eyes on the prayer mat, transformed into rubies. Lurching back until he knelt with his head once more upright, he, that there, he found that the tears which had sprung to his eyes had solidified too. And at that moment, as he brushed diamonds contemptuously from his lashes, he resolved never again to kiss earth for any god or man. This decision, however, made a hole in him, a vacancy in a vital inner chamber, leaving him vulnerable to women and history. Unaware of this at first, despite his recently completed medical training, he stood up, rolled the prayer mat into a thick cheroot, and holding it under his right arm, surveyed the valley through clear, diamond-free eyes. The world was new again. After a winter's gestation in its eggshell of ice, the valley had beaked its way out into the open, moist, and yellow. The new grass bided its time underground. The mountains were retreating to their hill stations for the warm season. In the winter, when the valley shrank into the ice, the mountains closed in and snarled like angry jaws around the city on the lake. In those days, the radio mast had not been built from the temple of Sankara Achara, a little black blister on a khaki hill still dominated the streets and lake of Srinagar. In those days, there was no army camp at the lakeside. No endless snakes of camouflaged trucks and jeeps clogged the narrow mountain road. No soldiers hid behind the crests of the mountains past Baramula and Gomar. In those days, travelers were not shot as spies if they took photographs of bridges, and apart from the Englishman's houseboat on the lake, the valley had hardly changed since the Mughal Empire for all its springtime renewals. But my grandfather's eyes, which were like the rest of him, 25 years old, saw things differently, and his nose had started to itch. To reveal the secret of my grandfather's altered vision, he had spent five years, five springs, away from home. The tussock tussock of earth, crucial though its presence was, as it crouched under a chance wrinkle, the prayer mat, was at bottom no more than a catalyst. Now, returning, he saw through traveled eyes, instead of the beauty of the tiny valley circled by giant teeth, He noticed the narrowness, the proximity of the horizon, and felt sad to be at home and feel so utterly enclosed. He also felt inexplicably as though the old place resented this educated, stethoscoped return. Beneath the winter ice it had grown coldly neutral, but now there was no doubt the years in Germany had returned him to a hostile environment. Many years later, when the hole inside him had been so clogged up with hate and he came to sacrifice himself for the shrine of the black stone god in the temple on the hill, he would try and recall his childhood springs in paradise the way it was before travel and tussocks and army tanks messed everything up. On the morning when the valley, gloved in a prayer mat, punched him on the nose, he had been trying absurdly to pretend that nothing had changed. So he had risen in the bitter cold of 415, washed himself in the prescribed fashion, dressed and put on his father's astrakhan cap, after which he had carried the rolled cheroot of the prayer mat into the small lakeside garden in front of their old dark house and unrolled it over the waiting tussock. The ground felt deceptively soft under his feet and made him simultaneously uncertain and unwary. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, The exordium, spoken with hands, joined before him like a book, comforted a part of him, made another, larger part, feel uneasy. Praise be to Allah, Lord of the creation. But now Heidelberg invaded his head. Here was Ingrid, briefly his Ingrid, her face scorning him from this Mecca-turned-parodine. Here, their friends Oscar and Ilsa Lubin, the anarchists, mocking his prayer with their anti-ideologies the compassionate, the merciful, king of the last judgment, Heidelberg, in which along with medicine and politics, he learned that India, like radium, had been discovered by the Europeans. Even Oscar was filled with admiration for Vasco da Gama, and this was what finally separated Adana Sees from his friends, this belief of theirs that he was somehow the invention of their ancestors. You alone we worship, and to you alone we pray for help. So here he was, despite their presence in his head, attempting to reunite himself with an earlier self which ignored their influence but knew everything it ought to have known about submission, for example, about what he was doing now as his hands, guided by old memories, fluttered upwards, thumbs pressed to ears, fingers spread as he sank to his knees. Guide us to the straight path, the path of those whom you favored. But it was no good, he was caught in a strange little ground, trapped between belief and disbelief, and this was only a charade, after all. Not of those who have incurred your wrath, not of those who have gone astray. My grandfather bent his forehead towards the earth. Forward he bent, and the earth, prayer mat covered, curved up towards him. And now it was the tussock's time. At one and the same time, a rebuke from Ilsa, Oscar, Ingrid, Heidelberg, as well as valiant God, it smote him upon the point of the nose. Three drops fell. There were rubies and diamonds. And my grandfather, lurching upright, made a resolve, stood, rolled cheroot, stared across the lake, and was knocked forever into that middle place, unable to worship a god in whose existence he could not wholly disbelieve permanent alteration a whole
3: I'd like to introduce the next two readers first there will be Betty Friedan, who's best known for her book The Feminine Mystique and she'll be reading from Rushdie's novel Shame and finally Roberta Smootin who is has a novel The White Horse Cafe and she will be reading from the Satanic Verses.
25: I felt very strongly <clears throat> the need to join in the pen protest nationwide. Uh, as a, a writer uh, whose ideas have, you know, been associated with the rights of women and unfinished revolution, his book has been books have been banned. Have, I myself have, been, have experienced bomb threats um, that at one point, uh, not only, you know, threatened uh, under the threat of bombing, a bookstore, I closed down and uh, it looked for a while as if my work as a lecturer would be uh, very much affected. And then through the courage of Catholic nuns in one institution, and Minnesota press women and pressmen and another, this uh, uh, a kind of protest that we're doing tonight showed that these kinds of threats by uh, fundamentalist groups uh, to ideas that they find distasteful would not be tolerated in a country where free speech is a great value. Because I was horrified at the sense that writers or publishers or booksellers or any of us would be intimidated by this threat, I was really very happy to hear that there would be this protest and to join in it. I also know incidentally that one of the reasons that Rusty's work has offended is that he was critical of the treatment is critical in his books of the treatment of uh, women um, and treats women in a rather a full measured way. And the passage I've been asked to read tonight is from his book, Shame. But who was pregnant? Uh, Tony the eldest, or money in the middle, or little bunny, the baby of the three? Nobody ever discovered, not even the child that was born. Their closing of ranks was absolute and affected with the most meticulous attention to detail. Just imagine, they made the sor- servants swear loyalty owes on the book. The servants joined them in their self-imposed captivity. During the entire term of that pregnancy, no doctor was summoned to the house. And as it proceeded, the sisters, understanding that unkept secrets always managed to escape under a door, through a keyhole, or an open window, until everyone knows everything and nobody knows how, the sisters, I repeat, displayed the uniquely passionate solidarity that was their most remarkable characteristic, by feigning, in the case of two of them, the entire range of symptoms that the third was obliged to display. Although some five years separated Cheney from Bunny, it was at this time that the sisters, by virtue of dressing identically, and through the incomprehensible effects of their unusual chosen life, began to resemble each other so closely that even the servants made mistakes. I have described them as beauties, but they were not the moon-faced almond-eyed types so beloved of poets in that neck of the woods but rather strong-chinned powerfully built purposely striding purposefully striding women of an almost oppressively charismatic force now the three of them began simultaneously to thicken at the waist and in the breast when one was sick in the morning The other two began to puke in such perfectly synchronized sympathy that it was impossible to tell which stomach had heaved first. Identically, their wombs ballooned toward the pregnancy's full term. It is naturally possible that all this was achieved with the help of physical contrivances, cushions and padding, and even faint-inducing vapors, but it is my unshakable opinion that such an analysis grossly demeans the love that existed between the sisters. In spite of Biological improbability, I am prepared to swear that so wholeheartedly did they wish to share the motherhood of their sibling to transform the public shame of unwedlocked conception into the private triumph of the longed-for group baby that, in short, twin phantom pregnancies accompany the real one, while the simultaneity of their behavior suggests the operation of some form of communal mind. They slept in the same room. They endured the same cravings, mazapán, jasmine petals, pine kernels, mud, at the same times. Their metabolic rates altered in parallel. They began to weigh the same, to feel exhausted at the same moment, and to awake together each morning as if somebody had rung a bell. They felt identical pain. In three wombs, a single baby, and its two ghostly mirror images kicked and turned with the precision of a well-drilled dance troupe. Suffering identically, the three of them, I will go so far to say, fully earned the right to be considered joint mothers of the forthcoming child, and one, when one, I will not even guess the name, came to her time, nobody else saw whose waters broke, nor whose hand locked a bedroom door from the inside. No outside eyes witnessed the passage of the three labors, two phantom, one genuine, or the moment when empty balloons subsided while between a third pair of thighs, as if in uh, in an alleyway, there appeared the illegitimate child, or when hands lifted, Omar Khayyam Shakil by the ankles, held him upside down and thumped him on the back. Our hero, Omar Khayyam, first drew breath in that improbable mansion which was too large for its rooms to be counted, opened his eyes and saw upside down "'through an open window, the macabre peaks "'of the impossible mountains on the horizon, "'one but which of his three mothers "'had picked him up by the ankles, "'had pummeled the first breath into his lungs, "'until, still staring at the inverted summits, "'the baby began to scream. "'When Hashmat Bibi heard a key turning in the door "'and came timidly into the room "'with food and drink and fresh sheets "'and sponges and soap and towels, "'she found the three sisters,' sitting up together in the the capacious bed, the same bed in which their father had died a huge mahogany found four poster around whose columns carved serpents coiled upwards to the brocade Eden of the canopy they were all wearing the flushed expression of dilated joy that is the mother's true prerogative and the baby was passed from breast to breast and none of the six was dry (laughs)
26: out that there have been more factual errors printed about this book in such reliable sources as the Los Angeles Times, for example, um, about what goes on in these so-called blasphemous chapters. Um, all of those blasphemous chapters are the dreams, the narrative dreams, of one of the main characters in the book. Uh, he is a character who perhaps is psychotic, And whenever he falls asleep, he's terrified of falling asleep because of these dreams. Whenever he falls asleep, one of these continuing narrative dreams comes to him. So the story of Mahound is one of his continuing narrative dreams. Uh, And I'm going to read from the beginning of the story of Mahound. The businessman. Looks as he should. High forehead, eagle nose, broad in the shoulders, narrow in the hip, average height, Brooding, dressed in two pieces of plain cloth, each four L's in length, one draped around his body, the other over his shoulder. Large eyes, long lashes like a girl's. His strides can seem too long for his legs, but he's a light-footed man. Orphans learn to be moving targets, develop a rapid walk, quick reactions, hold your tongue, caution. Up through the thorn bushes and opa balsam trees he comes, scrabbling on boulders, this is a fit man, no soft-bellied usurer he. And yes, to state it again, takes an odd sort of business, Walla, to cut off into the wilds, up Mount Cone, sometimes for a month at a stretch, just to be alone. His name, a dream name, changed by the vision. Pronounced correctly, it means, he for whom thanks should be given. But he won't answer to that here. Nor, though he's well aware of what they call him, to his nickname in Jahilia down below, he who goes up and down Old Coney, here he is neither Mahomet nor Mohammed, has adopted instead the demon tag the Farangis hung around his neck, to turn insults into strengths. Whigs, Tories, Blacks, all chose to wear with pride the names they were given in scorn. Likewise our mountain-climbing, profit-motivated, solitary, is to be the medieval baby-frightener, the devil's synonym, Mahound. That's him, Mahound, the businessman, climbing the hot mountain in the Hejaz. The mirage of a city shines below him in the sun. Jahilia today is all perfume, the scents of Araby, of Arabia odorifera, hang in the air, balsam, cassia, cinnamon, frankincense, myrrh. The pilgrims drink the wine of the date palm and wander in the great fair of the Feast of Ibrahim. And among them, one wanders whose furrowed brow sets him apart from the cheerful crowd. A tall man in loose, white robes. He'd stand almost a full head higher than Mahound. His beard is shaped close to his slanting, high-boned face. His gait contains the lilt the deadly elegance of power. What's he called? The vision yields his name eventually. It, too, is changed by the dream. Here he is, Karim Abu Simbel, grandee of Jahilia, husband to the ferocious, beautiful Hind, head of the ruling council of the city, rich beyond numbering, owner of the lucrative temples at the city gates, wealthy in camels, comptroller of caravans, his wife, the greatest beauty in the land. What could shake the certainties of such a man? And yet, for Abu Simbel, too, a crisis is approaching. A name gnaws at him, and you can guess what it is. Mahound, Mahound, Mahound. Abu Simbel laughs at minstrels singing vicious satires, vitriolic odes, commissioned by one chief against another, by one tribe against its neighbor and nods in recognition as one of the poets falls into step beside him, a sharp, narrow youth with frenzied fingers. This young lampoonist already has the most feared tongue in all Jahilia, but to Abu Simbel he is almost deferential. Why so preoccupied, Grandi? If you were not losing your hair, I'd tell you to let it down. Abu Simbel grins his sloping grin. Such a reputation, he muses. Such fame, even before your milk teeth have fallen out. Look out, or we'll have to draw those teeth for you. He is teasing, speaking lightly, but even this lightness is laced with menace because of the extent of his power. The boy is unabashed. Matching Abu Simbel stride for stride, he replies, for every one you pull out, a stronger one will grow, biting deeper, drawing hotter spurts of blood. The grandee vaguely nods. You like the taste of blood, he says. The boy shrugs. A poet's work, he answers, to name the unnameable, to point at frauds, to take sides, start arguments, shape the world, and stop it from going to sleep. And if rivers of blood flow from the cuts his verses inflict, then they will nourish him. He is the satirist, Baal. A curtained litter passes by, some fine lady of the city out to see the fair, borne on the shoulders of eight Anatolian slaves. Abu Simbel takes the young Baal by the elbow under the pretext of steering him out of the road, murmurs, I hoped to find you, if you will, a word. Baal marvels at the skill of the grandee, searching for a man, he can make his quarry think he has hunted the hunter. Abu Simbel's grip tightens. By the elbow, he steers his companion towards the holy of holies at the center of the town. I have a commission for you, the grandee says, a literary matter. I know my limitations, the skills of rhymed malice, the arts of metrical slander. They're quite beyond my powers. You understand. But Baal, the proud, arrogant fellow, stiffens, stands on his dignity. It isn't right for the artist to become the servant of the state. Abu Simbel sinks into silkiness. Maybe so, he whispers at the gates of the House of the Black Stone, but, Baal, concede. Don't I have some small claim upon you? We both serve, or so I thought, the same mistress. Now the blood leaves Baal's cheeks. His confidence cracks, falls from him like a shell. The grandee, seemingly oblivious to the alteration, sweeps the satirist forward into the house. They say in Jahiliya that this valley is the navel of the earth, that the planet, when it was being made, went spinning around this point. Then the time of the idols began. By the time of Mahund, 360 stone gods clustered around God's own stone. There is a god here called Allah, means simply the god. Ask the Jahilians, and they'll acknowledge that this fellow has some sort of overall authority, but he isn't very popular, an all-rounder in an age of specialist statues. Abu Simbel and the newly perspiring Baal have arrived at the shrines, placed side by side of the three best-loved goddesses in Jahilia. They bow before all three, Utsa of the radiant visage, goddess of beauty and love. Dark, obscure manat, her face averted, her purposes mysterious, sifting sand between her fingers. She's in charge of destiny, she's fate. And lastly, the highest of the three, the mother goddess, whom the Greeks called Lato. Ilat. they call her here, or more frequently, Allat, the goddess. Even her name makes her Allah's opposite and equal. Lot, the omnipotent. His face showing sudden relief, Baal flings himself to the ground and prostrates himself before her. Abu Simbel stays on his feet. The family of the grandee, Abu Simbel, or to be more precise, of his wife, Hend, controls the famous Temple of Lot at the city's southern gate. These concessions are the foundations of the grandee's wealth, so he is, of course, Baal understands, the servant of Lot and the satirist's devotion to this goddess is well known throughout Jahilia, So that was all he meant. Trembling with relief, Baal remains prostrate, giving thanks to his patron lady, who looks upon him benignly. But a goddess's expression is not to be relied upon. Baal has made a serious mistake. Without warning, the grandee kicks the poet in the kidneys. Attacked just when he has decided he's safe, Baal squeals, rolls over and Abu Simbel follows him, continuing to kick. There is the sound of a cracking rib. Runt, the grandee remarks, his voice remaining low and good-natured. High-voiced pimp with small testicles. Did you think that the master of Lot's temple would claim comradeship with you just because of your adolescent passion for her? And more kicks, regular, methodical. Baal weeps at Abu Simbel's feet. The house of the black stone is far from empty but who would come between the grandee and his wrath? Abruptly, Baal's tormentor squats down, grabs the poet by the hair, jerks his head up, whispers into his ear, Baal, she wasn't the mistress I meant. And then Baal lets out a howl of hideous self-pity because he knows his life is about to end, to end when he has so much still to achieve the poor guy. The grandee's lips brush his ear, Shit of a frightened camel, Abu Simbel breathes. I know you fuck my wife. He observes with interest that Baal has acquired a prominent erection, an ironic monument to his fear. Abu Simbel, the cuckolded grandee, stands up, commands, on your feet, and Baal, bewildered, follows him outside. By the northwest face of the House of the Black Stone in an enclosure surrounded by a low wall, Abu Simbel approaches, halts a little way off. In the enclosure is a small group of men. The water carrier Khalid is there, and some sort of bum from Persia by the outlandish name of Salman. And to complete this trinity of scum, there is the slave Bilal, the one Mahund freed, an enormous black monster, this one, with a voice to match his size. The three idlers sit on the enclosure wall. That bunch of riffraff, Abu Simbel says, those are your targets. Write about them and their leader, too. Baal, for all his terror, cannot conceal his disbelief. Grandee, those goons, those fucking clowns, you don't have to worry about them. What do you think, that Mahoon's one god will bankrupt your temples? 360 versus one and the one wins? Can't happen. He giggles, close to hysteria. Abu Simbel remains calm. <clears throat> Keep your insults for your verses. Giggling Ball can't stop. A revolution of water carriers, immigrants, and slaves. Wow, Grandi, I'm really scared. Abu Simbel looks carefully at the tittering poet. Yes, he answers, that's right, you should be afraid. Get writing, please, and I expect these verses to be your masterpieces. Baal crumples, whines, but they are a waste of my, my small talent. He sees that he has said too much. Do as you're told, are Abu Simbal's last words to him. You have no choice. The grandee lolls in his bedroom while concubines attend to his needs. Coconut oil for his thinning hair, wine for his palate, tongues for his delight. The boy was right. Why do I fear Mahound? He cannot tolerate what he does not know. And for that reason, if for no other, Mahound is his enemy, Mahound with his raggle taggle gang, the boy was right to laugh. He, the grandee, laughs less easily. Like his opponent, he is a cautious man. He walks on the balls of his feet. He remembers the big one, the slave, Bilal, how his master asked him outside the Lat temple to enumerate the gods. One, he answered in that huge musical voice. Blasphemy, punishable by death. They stretched him out on the fairground with a boulder on his chest. How many did you say? One, he repeated, one. A second boulder was added to the first. One, one, one. Mahound paid his owner a large price and set him free. No, Abu Simbel reflects, the boy Baal was wrong. These men are worth our time. Why do I fear Mahound? For that. One, one, one. His terrifying singularity. He always was an ambitious fellow. Ambitious, but also solitary. You don't rise to the top by climbing up a hill all by yourself. Unless maybe you meet an angel there. Yes, that's it. I see what he's up to. He wouldn't understand me, though. What kind of idea am I? I bend. I sway. I calculate the odds, trim my sails, manipulate, survive. That is why I won't accuse Hind of adultery. Let her play with her satirist. Between, Between us it was never sex. I'll finish him when she's finished with.
28: we may be we may rest easier in the knowledge which I will share with you ahead of time that uh, the Satanic verses is number one on the Los Angeles Times bestseller list for next Sunday <laughs> what I will now read our last Rushdie reading is something that uh, he wrote after his book was burned by Muslims in the town of Bradford West Yorkshire in England about a month ago he wrote Muhammad Muhammad Ibn Abdallah, one of the great geniuses of world history, a successful businessman, victorious general, and sophisticated statesman, as well as a prophet, insisted throughout his life on his simple humanity. There are no contemporary portraits of him because he feared that if any were made, people would worship the portraits. He was only the messenger. It was the message that should be revered. As to the revelation itself, it caused Muhammad considerable anguish. Sometimes he heard voices, sometimes he saw visions, sometimes he said the words were found in his inmost heart, and at such times their production caused him acute physical pain. When the revelations began, he feared for his sanity, and only after reassurances from his wife and friends did he accept that he was the recipient of the divine gift of the word. The religion which Muhammad established differs from Christianity in several important respects. The prophet is not granted divine status, but the text is, It's worth noting, too, that Islam requires neither a collective act of worship nor an intercessionary caste of priests. The faithful communicate directly with their God. Nowadays, however, a powerful tribe of clerics has taken over Islam. These are the contemporary thought police. They have turned Muhammad into a perfect being, his life into a perfect life, his revelation into the unambiguous, clear event it originally was not. Powerful taboos have been erected, one may not discuss Muhammad as if he were human, with human virtues and weaknesses. One may not discuss the growth of Islam as a historical phenomenon, as an ideology born out of its time. These are the taboos against which the satanic verses has transgressed, these and one other. I also try to write about the place of women in Islamic society and in the Koran. It is for this breach of the taboo that the novel is being anathematized, fulminated against, and set alight. Dr. Adam Aziz, the patriarch in my novel Midnight's Children, loses his faith and is left with, quote, a hole inside him, a vacancy in a vital inner chamber. I, too, possess the same God-shaped hole. Unable to accept the unarguable absolutes of religion, I have tried to fill up the hole with literature. The art of the novel is a thing I cherish as dearly as the book burners of Bradford value their brand of militant Islam. Literature is where I go to explore the highest and lowest places in, the humans, in human society and in the human spirit, where I hope to find not absolute truth, but the truth of the tale, of the imagination, and of the heart. So, the battle of the satanic verses is a clash of faiths, in a way, or more precisely, it's a clash of languages. As my fictional character Salman says of my fictional prophet Mahund, it's his word against mine. In this war of the word, the guardians of religious truth have been telling their followers a number of lies. I am accused, for example, of calling Muhammad the devil. This is because I use the name Mahound, which long ago was indeed used as a derogatory term, but my novel tries in all sorts of ways to reoccupy negative images, to repossess pejorative language, and on page 93 explains, quote, to turn insults into strengths, Whigs, Tories, blacks all chose to wear with pride the names they were given in scorn. Likewise, our mountain-climbing, profit-motivated solitary is to be Mahound. The Zealots also attacked me by false analogy, comparing my book to pornography and demanding a ban on both. Many Islamic spokesmen have compared my work to anti-Semitism, but intellectual dissent is neither pornographic nor racist. I have tried to give a secular, humanist vision of the birth of a great world religion. For this, apparently, I should be tried under the Race Relations Act, or if not that, perhaps the Public Order Act, any old act, will do. The justification is that I have, quote, given offense. But the giving of offense cannot be a basis for censorship or freedom of expression would perish instantly. The Satanic Verses is not, in my view, an anti-religious novel. It is, however, an attempt to write about migration, its stresses and transformations from the point of view of migrants' from the Indian subcontinent to Britain. This is, for me, the saddest irony of all, that after working for five years to give voice and fictional flesh to the immigrant culture of which I am myself a member, I should see my book burned, largely unread, by the people it's about, the people who might find some pleasure and much recognition in its pages. I tried to write against stereotypes. The zealot protests served to confirm in the Western mind all the worst stereotypes of the Muslim world. How fragile civilization is. How easily, how merrily a book burns. Inside my novel, its characters seek to become fully human by facing up to the great facts of love, death, and, with or without God, the life of the soul. Outside it, the forces of inhumanity are on the march. Battle lines are being drawn up in India today, one of my character's remarks. Secular versus religious, the light versus the dark. Better you choose which side you are on. Now that the battle has spread, I can only hope It will not be lost by default. It is time for us to choose. Our final speaker today will be Alvin Toffler, author with his wife Heidi of a number of extremely well-known works, including Future Shock and The Third Wave. Mr. Toffler.
32: We are here tonight because we couldn't write what we write in perhaps most other countries of the world. Our books, too, have been on occasion banned and burned, and we had the delicious experience of having our book taken off the bookstore bookstore shelves in China as an example of decadent bourgeois spiritual pollution and then reissued, republished in millions of copies throughout China with support from the government itself. Therefore, it suggests to me that books have a kind of life of their own, that sometimes they're regarded as pornography and later they may not be, and sometimes they're regarded as offensive and in another age they might not be. I think we as Americans face, uh, need to look at this issue uh, in a very special way. The first point worth contemplating.